We recorded a core roundtable discussion, and when we started, I completely forgot to introduce all of the panelists that we had with us. Uh, We have Todd Foley, obviously, uh, the creator of the core RPG system. We also have Jesse with us. Uh, you know Jesse, if you listen to the podcast, he is also the creator of Monster Hunt, his uh, hack or skin of the core micro system. We also have Kurt with us. Uh, Kurt is the creator of the Welcome to the WWA. And we have Kevin with us as well. Uh, Kevin is were, has written some adventures for Call of Cthulhu, but uh, maybe, we hope, is adapting for core. Uh, and we have uh, also myself. So... There's the intros that I didn't do. Thanks for checking it out, and hope you enjoy it. I muted you again, fucker. Yeah, I know, you bastard. <laughs> I was actually just trying to give you, like, like actual good details. It says we've been live for six, almost seven minutes. Welcome to the Legends of Tabletop podcast. <laughs> Don't do that. You'll blow this place up. <laughs> guest, guest host. <laughs> All right. Hello, and welcome to the Legends of Tabletop podcast. We're going to be talking about core tonight. Uh, and it feels weird because we don't do like interviews or roundtables anymore. I have no dice in front of me. I have no character sheets up. It's a very weird feeling to be here uh, at the computer recording and having none of the accoutrement of uh, my of table is people. not even round. I didn't have to tell you, but I'm telling you <laughs> it's square. I, Sorry. I, I think Todd was going to do some downtime rolls for us all before we get started. I was I was on the divorced end of the thing. Oh yeah, well I rolled mine. No, I have twenty one cats. Twenty one cats. Oh hey, there you go. So you've downsized <laughs> a little bit. Got rid of two of them. Hmm. Nice, nice. Uh, so this is going to be a free form sort of thing. Uh, we are talking about core. Everybody here uh, has a project out or <laughs> something coming out soon. Uh, Adventure-wise, maybe, probably, possibly. Kevin, I'm looking at you, but but that's fine. Um, so I, we should probably start. Kevin, you're clicking, and I hate it. What is that? That was me. That was, was me. You? Sorry. Reconnected okay. my mic. Okay. All right. I'll have to edit Didn't my, think uh, you would hear it, man. You, nothing gets past you. I I am crazy for the sound. I just it's awful. All right. My head is so, off to you. My hair if, you, is if you're off, wondering that's... where one of the cats went, it's in the uh, the DNA recombiner from the fly, and John is actually part cat. <laughs> yeah, you can see my ears yeah. going. <laughs> wow, I disconnected my cable for two seconds, and I'm completely lost now. <laughs> Classic right, well, Legends of Tabletop. Right? <laughs> Or we'll circle back around. We'll bring you back in, Todd. So, Todd, tell us, what is Core? How is it developed? How did you come about this system? What was your intentions? We go throw like 10 questions out and see how many you remember. Uh, well, I mean, they're all kind of like origin story questions. And 
I mean, I can say what is core. I can give you some a, sh a short answer to that. Okay, so core is a uh, hybrid uh, that is traditional slash narrativist uh, minimalist role-playing game system, which is you know, every role-playing game system has its own feel. Core is designed for a lot of interplay, what I call psychic content, that is spontaneous generation of story content between players and GMs. So the narrative control gets kicked back and forth a lot and uh, very little prep is necessary because sort of, you know, that hybrid zone let me give you a let me give you an, an imaginary diagram, like a, sort of a Venn diagram thing. In a classical, traditional role playing game, you've got a circle where the GM controls everything in the world, and you've got a smaller circle where you, the PC, control everything about your PC. And you know, to a degree, the GM doesn't really have a right to tell you something about your PC if you don't agree to it. But you don't have the right to tell the GM anything about the world unless the GM, like you know, feels like being, you know beneficent that evening or whatever right so those two circles really don't touch the player fear of control is personal the gm's fear of control is like everything else in the world except for the player's personal life um and then you get your story games where they decided hey you know the role of the gm can be split up around the table and divided everybody can help control narrative flow and yeah that's true and when we get games like oh i don't know fiasco for instance just to pull one out of my head but there's many 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 uh, those those two circles sort of blend into one circle. Now everybody shares all the same roles, rules, and responsibilities as both player and GM. Okay, so the core approach, and there are hybrids too, but I mean, I've been doing this since 2014. This is a thought that's been uh, very forefront in my mind while working on this system over time, uh, is to deliberately head right down the middle to a place where those two circles are still distinct. There is the, the realm of the GM and there is the realm of the player, but they overlap. And it's sort of a matter of your personal style, how much you want to let them overlap. It might depend on genre or your table or just how you feel that night or what particular adventure you're running. Um, I often will, and this is one of the design intentions, of course, I'll often start a game with like almost no prep at all, just like kind of, a loose idea about like some characters and some places that are related to a thing. And that's really it. Core is designed to let you get off the ground running with very little prep, just like that, because you're going to be relying on the group mind and the skit content that comes out of the players who are smarter than, you know, <laughs> the, the players are creative geniuses and I want to bring that out in people. But a full-on shared GM responsibility situation, a, a story game situation, often you get people who are, uh, uh, you know, it, it fills them with anxiety because they feel like the narrative ball has been passed to them and now they have to be a genius. You know, it's like, oh, I'm going to a cocktail party where there's only going to be smart people saying smart things and creative people saying creative things and they're all going to turn and look at me and I'm going to, I don't know, say, or I have to be. So that, narrative contribution of the player I didn't want it to be like expected or demanded but instead welcomed and absolutely used when the GM wants to go there so I aimed straight down the middle I mean I've been revising it for a long time but I uh, I went back to the original um, back on storygames.com the, the day trippers game got 
conceived and, and, and sort of built in public uh, back in 2014 on the storygames.com forum. And I went back there recently. You can find it in the Wayback Machine. And I read the whole thread where we discussed day trippers, open source game mechanics. And it's actually kind of cool, I guess. I could say it's scary, but I'm going to say it's kind of cool. How much of the original mechanics that we brainstormed all the way back then still survive in core today? Like, I think that we, we hit a lot of nails squarely on the head back then. And the one split, if you could call it a split, was that there were people who wanted even less crunch, right? This is Story Games Forum. And so there were people who wanted it to be, you know, no, no dice or no GM. Uh, and I did end up writing a, a, a version of that. It's at the back of the Day Trippers core rules. For if you wanted to play in a totally collaborative style, I, st I still have a GM. I've, I came from the old country. Um, but I wanted to make it as open as possible. So it, it really, it is up to the GM. Now, a couple of years go by, Day Trippers goes out, the Day Trippers Game Master's Guide comes out. I put out various modules and adventures for Day Trippers. I start running the Legends of Day Trippers, uh, Legends of Tabletop Day Trippers <laughs> campaign. Uh, the Legends of Day Trippers that might be what we call it. We make the box set or whatever. There you go. Uh, and, you know, and tweak the system and play with it. As I went on running day trippers, basically it, the system became so clean and fast and enjoyable. And the play tests went so well and the campaigns arose out of nowhere. And, it just seemed to me that I this didn't have to be limited to the Day Troopers game, that this style of play, which is its own feeling, like when you play a Powered by the Apocalypse game, right? it has its own feeling. Okay, The way that you relate to each other at the table, the roles that you assume and the, the boundaries that you, you step across or don't, that defines sort of like the social structure of playing that game. And it has its own feeling. It's totally different than the feeling of being D&D, right? It's totally different than the feeling of playing any trad game. And Blades in the Dark has a different feel than Powered by the Apocalypse. Well, playing core has its own unique feeling, and I discovered that it's not limited to Day Trippers. Yes, Day Trippers makes a lot of things, I'm going to say, easier. Because if, you, if you're comfortable improvising, as I am, and, and you prefer emergent story to pre-planned plot, as I do then a surrealistic landscape uh, is going to give you more freedom than, than, you know, pretty much any other kind of setting you could imagine. So sure, Day Trippers gives me a leg up. It gives me the creative freedom to be surrealistic and spontaneous, gonzo, take as far as I want to take it. But underneath that, there's that, the basic mechanic, which is super simple. The same mechanic is used for every type of role, whether it's combat or diplomacy or, I don't know, did you remember to bring your shoes? The dice all work the same way. This, you know, you've got a pool of dice represented by your stat number. You've got bonuses represented by your skills and any modifiers that the, the GM throws on there. You try to beat a target number, which is it's really common. Even D&D does this now, okay? Even D&D 5e does this now. That's how common that has become. But the set of DL based on an adjective which corresponds to a scale of difficulty. That goes all the way back to Iron Crown, is where I first saw it. That's where Monty Cook first saw it. That's why you find it in Core. That's why you find it in Cypher. It's just a really elegant, simple way to do things. And that's what I'm looking for, the most elegant, simplest way 
to do the what's the what, what should the stat range be? You know, one to one hundred, one to twenty, three to eighteen, and well, no, the answer in core is always what is the smallest number that you can make work. Well, like if you see an actor portraying a role on TV, let's talk about his health, or let's talk about his brains, or let's talk about his dexterity. Like, how many different ways could that actor play this scene? which were distinct and clear enough to me to make an absolutely unquestionable assumption about what the actor's trying to convey. And I'm also never more than 10. It's probably more like six. Think about it. Even when the guy gets wounded, you know, you never see a person bleed every hit point from 99 on down. You couldn't tell the difference between hit point 97 and 96. It's hard enough to tell the difference between hit point three and hit point two. But if the scale is small enough, then everything that happens to that actor, even the smallest thing, the smallest shift in state is noticeable. And your player knows how to play it now. And the dice will, the math will make the dice do what the number says. Like, okay, instead of five out of six times nailing that jump, now you're wounded and that's going to be four out of six times. The cost of your stats is literally identical or close rounded to the, the odds generated by the dice you're rolling. I mean, I don't want to waste your time screen sharing, but you could go to the core Reddit. You could go to the core Reddit or you could go to the core Discord. I'll throw it in there too. And you can see the chart that I use. I calculated all the odds out and from that generated the costs. When you, when you create your character and you do the skill point, the point buy system, you're literally spending for those dice odds. That's why the costs are what they are. So, again, the system handles it for you. It's as simple as possible. You don't need to know that. You just go, wow, plus three is expensive. That's all you need to know. It's what does it allow us to do narratively. If you, as a player, especially a newbie player, if I tell you, um, okay, well, you know, level is kind of an open rating, but we kind of consider it one to 20, and I'm going to give you a pre-made character who's a level three ranger, and you're like, hang on, what is a level three? And you said on a scale of 20, and what is 20, and what is one? And I don't even know what you're talking about. The numbers are too big, and there's too many numbers. So the answer in core is always to make it simpler, make the scale smaller, so that any change in state that happens to your character or to an ability, or to your stats, or even to other things in the world, is clearly evident and narratively significant. That's the goal. The goal, of course, is to tell the story. We're going to make a story happen here. I don't want the mechanics getting in the way. I want just enough mechanics to make this thing make sense. And you give you a prompt, gives you a good idea. Keep those good ideas flowing. Get the system out of the way. Keep talking. Makes sense. Right? Um, so over the years, it just got simpler and simpler until it became core micro. Which is the smallest core, which we've talked about before. <laughs> it's the core of core. Yeah. I have, I have, I have two, I have two quick questions. It's one of them is actually something that's been sitting on my mind for a while, and I just yeah, never had time to ask. Somebody else it. talk for a while. God, I feel so. <laughs> so, so when you talk about um, kind of uh, when you talk about traditional games, in what would you classify as a traditional game, and in core? What from that tradition has been brought over and what have you purposefully left behind? Um, well, when I say traditional games, the easiest shorthand is for people to think Dungeons and Dragons. 
Hmm. And so I'm fine if you do that. Uh, because it is like in most people's, in many people's minds, it's the only role-playing game. And in most people's minds, it's sort of the standard definition of what an RPG is. Now, I don't think there is such a thing as a, a definition of what an RPG is. Uh, that's why there's so many different types of experimentation and, and branches of, you know, uh, you have gameism, simulationism, narrativism, and now I'm exploring experientialist narrativism. Things start breaking into finer and finer disciplines. We still don't have an academic language for any of this stuff. So it's rhizomic and it's spontaneous. But over there, you know, you sort of point toward the center of the bush that we all originally sprang from, right? The the, the, the taproot, right? The main... <laughs> yeah. And that's Dungeons and Dragons. And so when you say traditional, is moving in the direction of the taproot, right? The older, more classical definitions in which basically the GM is responsible for everything in the world except the player. And the player is responsible for all of their own decisions, but nothing about the world. Um, what did I keep? Well, I kept that basic stance. There is a GM in core. And although anyone is welcome to hack it in a, in a GM-less way. Um, but the way that I write it, the way that I play it, and the way that all the skins so far have gone, there is a GM. It's just that the boundary between what the GM is allowed to say and what the player is allowed to say is really blurry and sometimes completely obliterated. Did that answer your question? That I mean, did. I kept I kept a lot of the uh, OSR kind of feel, uh, mm -hmm. the whole idea that uh, it's really there's there's no pre-planned plot. There's no puzzle with only one way to solve it. And we're like, we're all sitting here waiting for mm -hmm. somebody to, you know, no, it's more about uh, the GM's going to come up with some weird situation and the player is going to come up with some weird solution that no one even thought of before. And then we're going to roll some dice and we're going to see, you know, so it's, it, it, it urges you to be creative in the same way that like puzzle solving and problem solving in the OSR urges players to be creative. It's more about what ideas the player has than um, what, the, you know, oh, I don't have a skill in that, so I'm not allowed to say anything. Right? Uh, no, I want you to open your mouth and say something. Yeah. What do you got for us, Kurt? Well, you seriously going to put this on me now? Jeez. <laughs> you know, I didn't have any questions prepared. Actually, I do have something now. Um, I want to play your WWA game. I really do, but I don't. I don't know any. I have imposter syndrome about wrestling. You know, and you don't, I don't think you need. It's funny because now that you said like, you were like, well, you need to write some more stuff on it that, you know. I'm sure it's obvious people... to you. Yeah, it's well, not, I know is, the is word. That... I know the word kayfabe, and I know that there's faces and there's heels, and that's about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, is I haven't really watched wrestling that much in a super long time myself, actually. So that's probably why I haven't even played it myself, which is pretty sad saying that like, hey, buy my game. I've never played it, but <laughs> it'll probably be. I think it's one of those things where the first time I do want to play it, and this is kind of dumb saying that anyway, is I would want to have some people around that know wrestling just to see if once you play it, you know, if people feel like this is a game that's mm. for the fans of the game. And not only that, but then I can ask that question like, okay, so if you didn't know wrestling, would you want to play this game? You know, well, and yeah, I mean, there's like the worldwide wrestling game, which I hear is great, and I would love to give it a shot. But same thing, I don't, I don't know if I'll know what I'm 
talking about. And I don't know if the rules explain it to me. I have a feeling they probably do. But maybe, maybe at a level deeper than I actually want to go. Your game might give me a level that's like, I don't know, about as deep as a cartoon. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? yeah, well, the thing is, this big of an investment? Just teach me a couple basic words, and then and and then we can play with it. Yeah, well, and I think with with wrestling, it's you know, I think like some of these companies now have done a done a good job of calling it entertainment now. So like, they don't mm. you don't have to like, okay, this is wrestling. Like, the, I saw one thing where it was like two two wrestlers were like have did like almost like their own play they were like eating at a restaurant and then it turned into something else and i'm like what the hell am i watching right now and i'm like like, this isn't wrestling but it was because it was part of the narrative and stuff like that so like (laughs) Mm -hmm. i think one of the cool things that having like the the woodland creatures be a part of it like you don't have to be have it make it be um uh specifically wrestling based like you can make it into this this wrestling thing but then also you can make it into this storyline where it's like almost you know like you're playing like uh um i can't think of what like mouse guard or whatever where it's Mm. like you know you're taking these characters and you're weaving this little story well you can do that and you can even have wrestling be the background of that really if you wanted to so like a Josie yeah. and the Pussycats adventure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. You can. That's the thing. Like the thing that I think. How's that for dating oneself? <laughs> the first, the first thing I think of is Josie yeah, and yeah. the Pussycats. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, the the thing that I think that I I actually dislike about role playing games the most is that people think when they see a, a role playing game, regardless of what it is, if it's D and D, if it's uh, any money cook game, if it's, you know, call it Cthulhu, people would just put it in a box and they call it this box. And that's what that box is. Yeah. And I hate that. I would love to, I love taking games. Like even when uh, John and the other John were playing my Dungeons and Dragons game, I was like, we don't need to stay in this box. You know, like I even, you know, did like what sometimes what Todd would do. I would just be like, why don't you tell me about your character? And like you bring out yourself in your character. And I know, like, uh, John would always be, like, you know, kind of deer in headlights. Like, I don't really know. I don't know if I want to do this. But then when he got to doing it, he did it well because he knows his character and he knows how to play and he knows where he wants to go. So, like, he always says, sure, like, there's oh, a thing that, that, I've, that I recognized when I was um, beginning to work with LARPs back in the, I guess, early 90s. Um, a couple of things. First off is the simpler you make the system, the easier it is for people to immerse. That one's, like... Maybe I, I thought because I came from Iron Crown, I came from the crunchiest of the crunchy traditional systems, right? I thought that in order to like have a number to reach back for, something to fall back on, no matter what the situation was, that you needed a sheet with hundreds of numbers on it, and the numbers had to be really detailed, like a scale of one to hundred, so you could get fine precision and. And that scared the fuck out of people. And I and I learned it when I moved from the tabletop into LARPing with people who have never don't even know what a role playing game is. Total strangers. To them, this was kind of like a group therapy experiment or something, right? A game, a social game of some kind. Um, they we didn't have the word LARP 
at the time. They, we didn't know that word. I think they were using it like in Norway in 1991, but I was not. Uh, I called it hypertheater. And I did use some actors who were semi-scripted, but basically it was like total strangers. And in order to get these total strangers, I did four of these things. And every time I did it, I made the system simpler and simpler and simpler. I ended up with something n not like core, but with about the same degree of complexity as core, because you just want the person to have just enough information to begin projecting themselves on this thing. That's what's really going on. Yeah. And here's a second realization. Oh, the player character sheet. I actually use this line in the DGMG years later. The player character sheet is a psychic osmotic membrane. It bleeds in both directions, okay? From you into the game world and from the game world into you. And so I actually want to make that as transparent as possible. It's part of my job as a game designer and as a GM is if I want you immersed, I want to be flowing directly into your head and your head flowing directly into the world and reincorporating that information back into the world. That's what reality does. Uh, I don't need a plot. I just need a system that's simple enough so that I can think fast. And you know what? I don't need hundreds of numbers. Because it turns out that if you, like, if you think well about how you want your stats to work, and you go, okay, well, this is about the scale. How many stats do we need? Six is a great number for a lot of reasons. Traditional game, D&D, &D, there's six stats. D6, simplicity. D6, everybody has a D6. You don't even need to buy dice to play this game. I'll only D6. Six is okay. We use six. There's six stats. They're rated on a scale of one to six. This is all staying in the realm of simple and to comprehend. Three of the stats are physical, three of them are mental. We can get more in depth. The whole idea was to take reality and make the simplest model, not a detailed specific model, but a model that was just detailed enough. So the difference between one and two or five and six was just enough to give you some idea what that means like quickly and easily right the trick is that no matter what you come up with it always comes from your head so you may feel this this piece of paper in front of me you know it's not me doing this it's him it's my character so if i feel safe to to say wacky things to 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 allow subconscious content to just bubble up from the back of my brain and come out my mouth because i always deny it and i always say it wasn't me it was him but secretly we all know that there's, there's nothing that comes out of your mouth. It's not you. You're the one that decided to be this guy. You're the one that decided what came out of his mouth. So we're really looking into your head. And if we use that, we get deeper fiction, more uh, emotional affect, more immersion, more meaning, not only for our characters in the story, but ultimately for us as people around the table. Because when I was LARPing, I had people come up to me after the games and they'd be like, I learned something about myself tonight by stepping out of myself or by exaggerating this aspect of myself or by trying the same approach I always try, but with 20 different people in three hours. I learned something about the real me by playing a fictional me. And I went, shit. If you make it simple enough for anybody to dive in quick and give them the freedom to spontaneously generate it so as much as they can, and you hold them in a state where they feel emotionally engaged and they trust you and they're having fun. You can actually change people's lives. You can get inside their heads. You can learn things, teach things, share things that are too deep for words, literally, as a group. 
Our day trippers group has had experiences in realities that don't exist where, you know, Jesse or John or the other John could just say one or two words and send the rest of us into a very strange mood that would take half an hour to describe. Saying something about the human condition or about, you know, existential angst or the nature of man-eating man in the dog-eat-dog capitalist world. There's no other medium that lets you do this. I just wanted to get the, the, the math and the machine parts out of the way to let the human part come through because these games can actually change people's lives, change people's minds. There's the deepest medium I think humankind has ever created. It's the only art form that can, if you want, include all the other art forms in it. I've written songs. I've written languages. You guys have probably done shit like this for your fictional worlds too. You know, you do geography, you do, you do climatology, meteorology, you do astrology, you make up fucking constellations, you make up like races and they have to have history. So you make up histories and you have to study real history to figure out how to do the fake history. Before you know it, you're a master of all this shit. that has got nothing to do with, did we kill the rust monster? It's actually a lot deeper than did you kill the rust monster? If I wanted to play a realistic simulation of battle, now we have computer games for that much more realistic more realistic than than any dice game could ever do so i don't even try competing with that you know well, my I, my players are creative geniuses and i'm the showrunner i keep them going i keep them flowing and what comes out is smarter than anything any computer can do because it's it's fast and it's human it's basing itself on emotion symbolism there's no waiting <laughs> there's no way for the machine to figure out why the sky turning gray is different than the sky turning green you picture both of those things and you know immediately they both feel different right that's that's a direct symbolic emotional connection from my brain to your brain computers don't know how to do this shit only a live human storyteller knows what words to use what tone to use what pacing to use to set you in the space where you feel comfortable and creative, involved, and spontaneous genius shit just comes out of your mouth. Yeah, but see, you're a master at that. I mean, the the mm. day trippers game as an example. I mean, for for the three of us, that's almost like therapy. It's like three hours of therapy, almost right. Like the game is almost just uh, a, a pastiche of everything else that's happening. As we just like sort of deep because day trippers isn't meant to be played as a deep you know uh, psychodramatic you know story sequence it's like hey we're gonna jump to a well a it's red uh, planet let me, let me stop you there it is it is it is meant to be played as deep and psychoactive uh it is not necessarily written it was not originally designed uh to be a long-term unfolding life themes that it was not designed for I was picturing deep and fast, like we're going to deal with this and you're going to learn. I hate my father. And then the episode ends. <laughs> so, yeah, one of I mean, one of the things you kind of hit on the head is with vid, with RPGs and games in general, you know, outside of video games that uh, that attempt simulation. Right. Because in order to do that, they believe that it requires an immense amount of mechanics, immense amount of math, lots of rolling. And 
in accomplishing that, for me, it breaks the realism. You know, I it, a while ago, I had one friend. Well, I can't remember what the system. Do you remember, right. um, like, like, compare Tomb Raider, the original Tomb Raider, to the well, new right, Tomb yeah. Raider? <laughs> yeah. Right. But, yeah, I mean, I had one friend a while ago that was trying to turn me on to this one system about how in-depth and how realistic you could get with everything and how you know in order to throw one punch you had to roll like five different times and then the other person they could they had to roll the dodge and block and all this and how like just five seconds of the game took took my first i never published it thank god but the first system i ever created took iron crown and and multiplied it I had yeah. primary stats, secondary stats, and tertiary stats. I had oh, static stats and variable stats. You had five different kinds of stats for a total of something like 70. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was insane. It was, you know, yeah. But that was the way I was thinking. And I later came to regard that as what I call GM's disease. Yeah. <laughs> um, there, is a, there is a demiurge in my head, and it wants to mechanize everything. Mm-hmm. And there's something very zen about doing it. I love it. And so one of the problems, probably the first thing that, uh, that appealed to me about game design, I was designing games before I knew what role-playing games were. My brother and I would invent card games and map games and, and weird shit. Mm-hmm. But um, the idea of like taking something that happens in real life and building a working model of it, I just find that fascinating. It's like some yeah. people like model planes or whatever, right? I like building working mathematical models of, of dynamic real world events so i think it's cool and and it's fractal right reality fractal you can get all the way down to the subatomic mm-hmm. level if you wanted to we could roll for what all the molecules do all the way up into what your sword does all the way up into what his body is doing while the sword hits his body yeah it could take literally years to play one round of combat if you wanted to do right. it that way and the reality has that much detail in it but because of my experiments with larps and with total strangers who didn't even know what a role-playing game was and working in a time limit, because I harm and circle, I'm sure we'll touch on that later. Mm. When you work in theater spaces, the time limit is also important. Um, I wanted to be an actor before anything else. I majored in performing arts in high school. Uh, it, was, it took me a couple of years before I realized, oh, actors don't write the words they say. Mm. <laughs> They're just saying somebody else's words. What you really want to be is the writer. But it took me a while to figure that out. But I, I went to the American Academy of Performing Arts uh, for one year, and uh, I majored in acting and was in band and drama and stagecraft and did all that geeky theater kid shit for a few years. Uh, and I'm sure that some of that has bled into the, the way that I GM, but also because I'm, I'm often I'm either in a theater space or I'm on a, I'm on a podcast, there is a time limit. And I, I want to tell you a, a, a story with a beginning, middle, and end. I want, or tell is the wrong word, right? I want us to elicit a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. I want us to get to a place that feels like a good place to stop. But I want to do it within this time limit. And it means give or take 10 minutes. I, I know where I need it to end. And there's a lot of reasons why you have to start thinking about narrative structure now. How do you produce a narrative structure without railroading your players? Now, you won't find this in Core Micro, uh, but you will find it in the upcoming Core Complete book. And it's not that I haven't thought about it. I've thought about it a lot. But so far, the most 
you'll find it written down as in the Day Trippers Game Master's Guide. Um, I've simplified that and I've changed it since then. My approach today is actually simpler than that. But if you wanted to start running core the way that I run it, uh, your best leg up right now is to read the Day Trippers Game Master's Guide and then just realize that it doesn't have to be Day Trippers. Because that narrative structure becomes really important. It's part That's where the meaning comes from. If the story doesn't come to an end, it's hard to draw meaning from it, right? I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say there's a lot of, of subtle, unsaid stuff um, that you're saying is not in core micro that, you know, all of us collectively, you know, creating our own worlds for core now are sort of stumbling on some of these, um, you know, aspects of core and, you know, running core and, you know, playing, you know, even experiencing it as a player is different. Uh, and there's a lot of, you know, subtle things that come up. Well, well, I hadn't, hadn't really thought about it cause you've run it. So like, well, how the fuck does this work? Or what does this mean? Or like, how do I, you know, yeah. do and it, this it actually thing did that... take me a long time. Even, even though I wrote some of this stuff down in the, in the, the DTGMG in 2015. So six, seven years ago, um, there's some of it that I kind of forgot or that I was just being spontaneous and intuitive about. And I didn't actually realize how deep it was going to end up going until playing it for years, literally with you guys. And so by the time I get to core micro and now you guys are writing other games based on that, uh, you know, core micro wants to be micro. So it doesn't really have a GM section in it. And I think maybe that was a mistake. Maybe I need to add in a GM section. Um, but there is a sort of a fuzzy line between like, how do you run core or how do you run core the way Todd runs it, the way that it's designer runs mm. it. And if I, if I do it right, core complete will, will fill that in, in the same way that if you read apocalypse world, I haven't read the second edition, but I've, I've heard that it's really not much better in this regard. Amazing game milestone game for me okay apocalypse world blew my mind and opened a lot of doors for me that led eventually to me creating day troopers in core but it is one of the worst organized game manuals i've ever read in my life <laughs> rogue instead trader made fight for that i spot. was about to say clearly you haven't read road trader <laughs> um, because vincent spends like over half the time in narrative fiction mode talking in character and then an example like pops in in the middle of the paragraph where he's talking in character about a scene that he's describing. And so when you want to find that mechanic later, you have to remember what, what scene that was in and, and find, oh, here's where he talks about seduction or whatever the hell. It was actually in a big, long passage about the scene between these two characters. There's no organization at all. But what he does super well, because he writes in character, you, you read one page of Apocalypse World and you already have a real strong feeling about what the world feels like and about what Vincent feels about running this world. And so that's the kind of level that I hope to express when I added the GM section and we, we get closer and closer to core complete. The part that right now is best approximated in the Day Trippers Game Master's Guide is what are the assumptions that Todd's making? And if you... Think about it a little bit. Sometimes it's mostly just about backing up. Like Jesse and I have been talking about runners a lot lately. And 
I almost always find when you're, when you're facing a design question in core, you're thinking too hard. Your first instinct is to add another table or build a sub-mechanic. And you may be right, maybe, um, but often it's about pulling back and going, actually, if you thought about it, not like a mechanic, but like a screenwriter. And I'm writing a story. And I want the audience to understand this. So when this unit depends on that unit and something happens to that unit, is it dramatically meaningful enough to bother putting any math in here at all? Will an adjective do or prompt or a yes and? And if you can work it back into the yes and, no but system, then almost all the time the answer is, oh, well, then just come up with a number, call it something, and use the universal mechanic. If it's complex enough to have five different outcomes, then it's complex enough to be included in the game. If it's not complex enough to have five possible outcomes, it's probably a binary. Do you have this adjective or not? Like a tag. And so, Kevin, to try to shoehorn you in the conversation here, um, (laughs) having run Core or Core Thulu now a couple of times, um, how do you feel about running Core Thulu as opposed to, say, Call of Cthulhu or... Uh, you know, D and D or some, you know, anything else that you've run. How how do you feel the differences in, um, you know, presenting that to to players? And I think Todd touched on it earlier, and I think we've talked about it previously. Especially if you're going to do like a Cthulhu game, there is a lot of. It's not the the D and D where you know your tank takes you know eighty different hits and he's still going kind of thing. It's you know it's set in a world where someone gets shot and it <laughs> you're probably going to die if you get shot kind of thing and the investigation part so as todd pointed out you know the story says okay you have to find something or see something or discover something if you leave it up to the dice <laughs> the chances are if everyone fails then that point that you wanted to shoot off of or expand on has failed because no one made their roles and i think the thing i liked <clears throat> the, the thing i like most about core is the dice rolls <clears throat> feed into the narrative. So the the no negative, no positive, yes negative, yes positive, that allows the players to take and expand it narratively or the person running it to then go and expand it. So you're in a library, you need to find this article to find someone to move the story along. If everybody fails to roll straight up, then you're stuck. But if you fail and it's a positive, then, you know, you can shoehorn in something else or, you know, split that off into another narrative from that. So that's the that's the thing and I the really GM, like. The here. GM can put the brake on that without ever saying a word or let yeah. it happen. Yeah. And because of that, you've got like every single time something comes up, you've got at least five ways it could go. And you've got five hidden ways because you could just let it happen or you could make something, make somebody roll something right? You've got, it's almost like you've got creative options. (laughs) (laughs) And a a silly thing about that, and I think we talked about it in one of the games we were playing. So if, if, if everybody's pushed for time or, you know, maybe everybody's not feeling it that night or things like that, you can use those roles to then mold that game. So it's, you're keeping everybody involved and excited even if someone was late or someone has to go early or, 
you know, someone dropped because of the weather or stuff, you, things like that. Or someone says, you know what, can we, can we finish up? Cause I got something else going on. You can use those roles and you can use those narrative points on those roles. And I think that's one of the ones in the game we ran last is I had it mapped out how we wanted it to go, but the players did something I wasn't expecting. So just chunk out that whole piece of the narrative I wrote and let the roles play and let the care, let the players and their characters you know, guide you. And I think the, the question I would have for you, Todd is, so the narrative for that, that, you know, the no negative, no positive. I, I, I really like that. That's, that's one of my favorite parts of core is because it lets you have that flexibility from story or from, you know, not just the characters, but the players themselves. Like I said, real life stuff comes up. Hey, mm-hmm. I got to go do something in 20 minutes. Can we wrap it up here? You know, those roles and those negative positive effects let you play into that. Did you put those, that specific framing in there from past experience? Or did you just think that's something that would help, help the, the you know, help the system itself because of past experience with other you know, other role-playing systems that had that, you know, the the no negative, no positive, that that kind of thing, not just relying on dice, but also not relying on everyone's improbability, you know, kind of melting them together. Uh, well, again, when, when Core was first designed, it was designed as day trippers, really. And so we were thinking day trippers, and it was an open source project. Uh, I was, I was not actually the first dude who talked about it, um, a guy named, I think, Dave Potemkin uh, came up with this wacky idea. We were talking about old heavy metal magazines and the kind of surrealistic science fiction like uh, like Mobius, you know, or Bilal, where you could just like the, the people from another dimension appear and they, I don't know, they have animal heads and they take you with them in their ship and you're in a you're in a place where you fly into the mouth of a giant baby head in space and there's a whole intergalactic federation in here and it's a shopping mall. And, you know, I mean, just bizarro science fiction, right? And we were trying to think, well, is it really, what, what system would you use for that? We might have to create one if you really wanted to go for true surrealism, right? Because surrealism as an artistic form is not just being weird. That's being surrealistic, right? But being truly surreal and what the surrealists meant when they invented the movement was about bypassing the conscious mind and getting content directly from the unconscious. And they would invent techniques for doing it. And often they would involve randomly selecting things or destroying things like writing things and then cutting them up and rearranging the words with your eyes closed or uh, trying to break up the natural patterns in order to find unconscious patterns of creativity. And so the word surreal suggested all of that to me. And the fact that we were talking in the story games forum. So I'm surrounded by people who uh, I wouldn't say disapprove of the traditional GM model, um, but they get brownie points for stepping away from it. And so I'm engaging with that crowd and brainstorming this idea. And I became the lead developer on what eventually became Day Trippers. When thinking about mechanics, I wanted to avoid being numeric and crunchy. Although I knew I needed some numbers because I didn't want to go pure Lady Blackbird, nothing but adjectives. I liked the one to six scale. I liked keeping everything on the same scale. And I was playing with 2D6 and 3D6 and starting to work out the math and starting to get married to that idea. And I knew that the story gamers wouldn't like it. 
And I wasn't completely satisfied with it either because roll to hit or fail lacks any, uh, where's the surrealist technique here, right? Where's the spontaneous urge for subconscious content? All I give you is a yes or a no to something that you said to me very consciously. It was, I'm talking to your critical mind now. I'm telling it yes or no. I'm not getting any surrealism at all. I want to get deeper. I need to engage you. What processes engage you? Well, the most engaging game at the time in my head was Archipelago. Because there, not only are there no dice, but you say what your character's destiny is right off at the bat, right at the beginning of the game. You know where you're going. And everybody kind of helps each other get to where their character's going. Uh, Matthew Holchis, I believe. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Holthus? Holth? Hard for me to pronounce Norwegian names. But anyways, the whole idea of yes and no and yes but, no but, came from Archipelago, uh, which is the most freeform uh, uh, table-based game that, that I could think of at the time. And I really loved it. It was simple. It went along with that whole thing. Is when you're taught um, improv, you know, I, I, I took classes in improv, and one of, the, one of the things they drill in your head is yes and, right? If you want your story to continue and grow and thrive, never deny what the other actor says. Always say yes and, and then take it one step further because that creativity builds and snowballs. That was I like that. Yeah. But the, this is a game that's the that most misunderstood mistake. mechanic in uh, in improv. <laughs> and you you explained it perfectly, Todd. And ninety percent of the people who try to use that don't know what it actually means. <laughs> and I think that point Todd brought up, and that's probably why I like that mechanic, is the yes and no, you know, no negative, no positive, because it, it, at least from my standpoint. If when I wrote something or I wrote some of the things that we've played in my mind, I'm playing it out saying, okay, well, let's do this. We're going to go from, you know, first, first act, second act, third act to get us to there. I'm betting John's character is going to do this or Jesse's character is going to do that or John B's character is going to do that. But, you know, it's almost like you're writing a novel. And then I think when the players go do something you're not expecting or taking you down a different path. I, I don't get stressed about it running it in core that I didn't plan for this. I didn't have any options for them to do this. The mm. negative and positive on and the Not only should you not get stressed about me. it, you should you should actually consider that a design flaw. <laughs> um because there's no reason like okay, the way I look at it, so I will, I did in uh Golden Age Adventures, I took sixteen classic science fiction stories written from the thirties to the fifties. By famous people, I mean, Paul Anderson is in there. Philip K. Dick is in there. I think I have a Harry Harrison in there. Um, Stanley Weinbaum. These guys uh, wrote what at the time was considered, you know, far out prescient science fiction. And now you look back at it and it's like, it's wacky. It's, it's almost Gumby. It's like pretty surreal. And so it fits because it feels surreal to us now looking back to it. So I did this book where I took these stories and I turned them into day trippers modules, but in order to make them work for core, in order to make them work in my style at all, what I had to do is break them into pieces, remove the storyline completely, stat the NPCs, stat the monsters, stat the locations, stat the events, stat the items, put the items in the locations, 
Give the monsters motivations and fears or whatever. Give the NPCs drives and goals. Everything about the story, though, should be considered a mere accident the way it went one time. Mm. Right? The way it went the one time the storytellers imaginary game group played it but you're not him and your group isn't his group and that's just one possible arrangement of all of these objects that's the way i approach the game so there's it's object oriented if you will a little software lingo for you the idea is that the, all the objects are disconnected they're scattered out there on the table you may hit them in any order and the order you hit them will change what happens and whatever happens some of them are going to move whether or not you, you do anything and a story will emerge. I don't know what it is yet, but a story will emerge. Hmm. Well, that's that's the that's the way I build it. Approach, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the yeah. you have a bunch of elements in place. You've got NPCs doing a thing, and then just sort of push the PCs at it, and whatever happens, happens. Well, that's right. so. That's yeah. one of the big things we've you know me and me and John have talked about this in designing adventures for Corthulhu, but in general, well, except for my games, because as I said, I love tables. And so all my, all my shit's just table driven anyway. So, but, <laughs> but like, if you were to, and create... so is day trippers. Oh yeah, true. Yeah. You know, Which is where it's I got not, I mean, ID. it's, it's, um, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that I like to call them oracles though. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Because, like, on the one hand, you go, oh, no, extra crunch, extra subsystems. No, that's the enemy. But if you use them as oracles, no, mm. they actually feed into the generative process. Because now your, your subconscious, your conscious mind goes, wait a minute, I just rolled floating and lava. And I know we're on an ice planet. And now your unconscious mind starts coming up with shit. <laughs> you have to connect floating and lava and ice right, somehow. To explain that, yep. To explain what you just rolled. Yeah. Yep. So your subconscious starts filling in the blanks. Yeah. You can't even help it. That's why the Oracle tables are good, although it's up to you how many you can handle. I mean, the Day Troopers book yeah. has like 72 tables. Yeah. <laughs> Any fucking weird thing. Dude, I have a random colors table. He does, yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, but, uh, but no, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, the system, you know, core lets. So if you're having like Todd said, getting people who are new to it or haven't played it before, or, you know, have never played an RPG before. I think that the mechanic for those roles then adding on lets the person running the game move them along and help them. Or like when we play, everybody here has played a million games, right? So you don't really have to guide them in the, in the, the, and the positives and negatives, let them build their own story, their own scenario. So it's not just you trying to railroad them. So I think it, it's that flexible saying you can take new players who've never seen it and kind of guide them or let, let the players go wild and, and create their own thing. So that's the yeah. fun bit about it is you don't need all that historical. Okay. Well, what games have you played? Well, you played D&D, which, you know, which edition have you played? Because there's that much difference between them. Or, right. you know, a Cthulhu game is very regimented on what can happen with roles. Mm -hmm. And that's what I like about Core is it lets you, it expands out or contracts depending on what's needed for the moment. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, it, so that's it, one it of the big things we've talked about. Yeah. Oh, God. Right. If, 
at the table, like whatever's happening at the table is going to affect what happens in the game. If you, yeah. uh, if you're all, if you're all having a bad day, um, you're going to get a very like, you know, sardonic game session. It's, it's, it's your, your mood's going to be reflected in it because the, because, uh, you know, I'm doing everything I can to remove the system. Uh, I don't know if it was Ron Edwards who coined the word, but he certainly popularized the phrase fiction first. Uh, your narrativist games tend to tend to go fiction first. And what that means is there's never a moment, I hope, there's never a moment where you're looking at your character sheet going, oh, well, I've got a plus three. Uh, I definitely need to use that. But if I do it with this, then I get a plus five. Then I'd have a plus eight. I'm going to work out a way where I can do the stabbing attack from the shadows. And then you spend your whole time trying to figure out how to work in a stabbing attack from the shadows so you can get your fucking plus eight. You were driven by the plus eight, right? That's the last mm-hmm. thing I want. What I want is the story and your feelings to make you come up with an idea. I need to do the thing. Mm-hmm. And then the GM goes, okay, let's see what dice we need to do that thing. And we quickly well, yeah. figure that out and then get the math out of the way because we're back to yeah. storytelling again. You know, when we were talking on uh, on Discord the other day and you were you were discussing, um, you know, the potential of lethal and non-lethal damage and all this kind of stuff and, you know, potential modifiers for all that. Uh, it, one of the things that it immediately brought up in my mind is I had a D&D group a long time ago where that was me and this was a case of GM's disease, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Yep, yep. And uh, yeah, it was third edition, which was, you know, potentially one of the the crunchiest version of D&D that they've had yet. And I I would have players who would talk themselves out of doing things because (laughs) of the numbers, because they'd say, well, I, I want to do this. I would love to do this thing. However, if I do it, I could potentially take an attack of opportunity and uh, I'd be dealing with uh, a plus four doing this. However, if I just straight up attack it, I'm dealing with a plus seven. And so, and right. you so know, what those guys are doing is fiction follows. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, in, in, in like giving it more numbers your, and giving it all creative, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Your creative wings right. are clipped now. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so that's why that's that was what was in the back of my mind when we were talking, and that's kind of why I tried to talk you, you know, to to talk that down Off because all <laughs> yeah, all I thought about was the people saying, "Well, I really do want to keep this guy alive, but if I do it, I'm rolling it a negative two, so fuck it, I'm just gonna kill him." Whereas they should like they they should just be like, "Fuck, just it's a game, just do whatever you want, and and let's let it decide." And that's that's kind of that's what I love about core and what you've driven us to, especially over the day trippers game and how the mecha- like the game plays into that where it's you, you taught, you say what you want to do. You say what, what your character projects is going to happen. Mm-hmm. You, you talk about all that and then it's a single role that decides then the outcome of what they attempted to do. And it's super simple but something that I think all games strive to do, but the mechanics inevitably end up getting in the way. Or, and I think that's like a huge problem with D&D, right? Where you have the number crunch and you want to, you know, min-max the character. And like, even if you like to role play, like you're still, you know, when you're creating a character, you're trying to, you know, make everything work 
the best way possible. But like, I feel like Kurt for, for the game that you ran for us, even though like, I'm going to kind of do that on the, on the front end, right. And creating a character and, you know, try to make sure the bonuses stack and things sort of make sense. And, you know, it's going to work the way that I want it to. Did you feel like when you ran that game that we had that sort of an issue? Cause I feel like core has sort of now colored all of our role-playing experience where everything that we play now, regardless of whatever the system wants to do, we play fiction first, even if it's detrimental to a character. Not that you're like, well, you know, I'm not going to take the plus eight. Well, no, okay, I'm going to try to parkour up the work wall because I have a plus eight in acrobatics you know, to, try to get behind and say, stab him. Right now, you're in that blurry area, right, between the way core works and the way Todd runs. Uh, right, right. Right, because it is it's a little it's a little bit both. Like I was talking about Apocalypse World earlier, right? When you got like the principles, there's a list of principles in Apocalypse World. Uh and, and you're supposed to have internalized them as a GM, right? But when a when a when a when an ethical experienced GM reads the Apocalypse World principles, there's like ten of them, maybe twelve. And at least seven or eight of them you'll go, Oh, I, I do that. Oh, I do that already. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. It's good to do that. Right. In other words, what he codified was his own his own ethic about the way he GMs. And there's a blurry line between what what's apocalypse world. The principles are written down after all. And what's just, you know, the way Vincent thinks a GM should be. <laughs> uh, because when you read those principles, you know, most of them you go, oh, yeah, that's just that's just what a good GM should do. Right? Like. It's almost like, why did you write these down, Vincent? Right? These are just obviously good ideas. And I think and when it comes spoiled. to core, we're in that, we're in that blurry area where it's kind of like you guys may have started from, and I too, you know, started from a more trad world. Um, but having explored this territory and starting to see different ways to approach the table, I don't want to say system doesn't matter. System does matter, but it doesn't matter categorically. You could, in theory, you could approach any game in the style of another game, I think. Yeah. So that, I'm actually interested. So. Oh, we finally said four, something interesting. Yeah, right. Well, no. It's <laughs> of, the, of, the, of the four of us here, sans Todd, who, um, you know, me, me and John have played core under Todd. And For as far as time. I know, Kevin and Kurt haven't. I have, but you've. Oh, you have. Oh, well, yeah. Because Todd Todd ran something for the MFG cast quite a while ago, and it was. Really oh, that yeah, yeah. Day Trippers game, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was That's Day Trippers. Right. It was it was freaky, and I loved it. I think about that often, actually. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then I guess this is for Kevin. Although Todd, <laughs> Kurt, yours was a while ago, so you might. I don't know. But so Kurt was a one shot. Right. Yeah. So how. How is your experience with core as you, as you know, and we've talked, we've talked often how occasional, you know, sometimes it's difficult to differentiate Todd from core, you know, because it, it, it is your system, right? And so you kind of develop the, I feel like over time, like the system is kind of developed into how you run, right? Yeah, but what's left out of the rules is like when to do this, when to do that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 
So how for for the two of you, it's you know more so for Kevin because you've never run under Todd before, but you know generally for the two of you, how is it running? Does this core feel like we're explaining it with Todd? <laughs> like does it still does it still feel like that like narrativistic driven game that has all the options and everything like that that we experience under Todd constantly? Lots of bleed. Right. I would hope that you guys feel that the games we've played with core stick to what you feel when you've played with Todd, right? Not, not saying, okay, well, Todd did it this way. You did it that way. But like the overall feel of, you know, this is what we're expecting. Like, okay, we're going to play a core game. I don't want anybody at the end of it going, holy crap, that <laughs> wasn't expecting that or, right. you know, that kind of thing. Or it, not from a story standpoint or a character standpoint, but from from the system standpoint. Like, okay, well, you know, I and I know we've talked since this is something new for me. There's been a bit of banter that obviously John probably has to cut out of, okay, we'll do it like this. Or, you know, I've asked, okay, we have this situation. How should we resolve it? And everybody comes back and says, well, this is the way we've done it before. This is what we, you know, we've all gone to the, to the core roles to go through it. So hopefully it hasn't got to the point or hopefully it's never been brought up saying that didn't feel like a core game. And to Mm -hmm. me, not having the experience of either playing with Todd or playing in other core games, to me, I, I feel I've stayed true to what the system is expecting, right? You don't want to go in. And I think we've said this before, if you want it to be more crunchy, you can make it more crunchy. You can have people do a lot of roles or you could just go with it and say, let's make it all narrative and mm-hmm. eliminate the roles. You know, we always joke around about the games that John and Jesse and I have played in the past that what we roll dice maybe once every two sessions on a super crunchy system. But that's just the way we play and that's the way we interact. So I think core to me lets it be like Todd said, everybody's having a shit day. No one's got really the the creative juices flowing. You know what? Let's roll a million times because that will drive it forward. Or if everybody's all looped up and excited and in a good headspace, then you don't have to do any roles because everybody has good ideas from a narrative standpoint. So I'm that's hoping a, that's that. A great point. Yeah, and I'm hoping mm-hmm. when we've played them. To me, I, I, I've never gone away from the sessions we've done, saying we should have done this or should we have done that. Everybody seems to be pretty excited the way it went, and I felt good about the way it went. So as long as, and and we said before, as long as everybody happy and had a good time, then that's that's all I'm really shooting for. So I would I would say uh, if uh, like now might be a moment for me to to offer a critique because I have watched all of all of you guys uh, play tests on on the on the channel. So all, all all the core Thulu stuff that's out there, I've seen it. I've seen Kevin run I think two scenarios. Hmm. Uh, and I would agree with everything you say. I would say there are there are two road bumps for you, and one of them is something you can address directly, and the other is something that we really need to get to a meta level and think about a little. So the one that you can address directly is just about being comfortable with when action frames start happening. Um, that's confusing for a lot of people because they've never played a game where everybody r- rolls once and 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 then we resolve. Yeah. Uh, and it's weird. It's admittedly weird. Now, all the rules you need are there. 
but you have to keep looking at them. And there's not many, but you have to internalize them. So you have to look at them until you internalize them. Okay. Somebody at that table, it was either the GM or one of the players, somebody made the highest natural role. If there's any question about resolution order, the person who made the highest natural role, their side resolves first. So that handles that. Um, but everybody declares before the dice hit the table. So that's another thing that it, it, some games do, some games don't. This game, you declare what you intend to do because when the dice hit the table, you may get that and more, right? Or you may get almost that. So we have to know what you're aiming for. And we say what everybody's aiming for. It doesn't mean you're going to get it. Even if you succeed, you're probably not going to get exactly that, right? So you declare first. Uh, if there's any question about order, look at the dice. If the dice are tied, look at skills and then look at stats. If there are any question about resolving order, those rules are in the game. They rarely, honestly, they rarely need to come up, though. Usually it's pretty clear. If I'm running across the room and you're shooting at me, uh, it's obviously you're going to resolve first. It's going to take me longer than you. So uh, a lot of the time it's pretty clear who to resolve first. Uh, but you have to think in your head, this is like a frame in a comic book. That's why I use the word frame. In a panel in a comic book, like you don't see every step that the hero takes, right? You see him on that side of the street running this way. And then in the next frame, he's already over here punching the villain, and the villain is knifing him simultaneously. That's a frame, right? So that's the kind of shit that happens here. Now, when it comes to the meta thing, uh, John and Kevin both, um, I mean, I think we need to, or we can, because we got the Discord. We've got a place where we can where we can talk about narrative structure as it pertains to investigative cosmic horror, Call of Cthulhu, that sort of thing. Because I think that, here's, here's the critique, I think that you're moving into a very difficult area uh, if you try to stay like Call of Cthulhu and be like Core at the same time, and the problem is not the mechanics, uh, the problem is actually the way that scenarios are structured. If you think Call of Cthulhu, you're picturing a plot line, and that works against everything the core mechanic is trying to build. So I think it's a matter of like taking that plot line, like I said before, breaking it into pieces and trying to view all the pieces. You know, you've got uh, a group of cultists who are in a, maybe they're in a hotel for a convention and they're going to do a ritual and they have all sorts of weird magical shit. Okay. So there's the group, there's the individual cultists. Maybe there's an oddball who can be pulled away or gotten information off of or whatever. You've got the hotel staff who are going to notice some weird things about these cult people. You've got, uh, where did they get their magical? Or maybe there's a, an herbalist in town. They had to visit the herbalist to get the thing they need for the ritual. So there's another person who's affected by the presence of the cult. There may be strangers on the street who bumped into the cultists and something weird happened and somebody's face turned into jello or whatever. Uh, my point is that just because cultist leads to ritual leads to Nyarlathotep doesn't mean that there aren't dozens of affected nodes that you could work your way into the story from all sorts of different directions. And so you take that storyline, you break it into bits, scatter the bits on the table, and you think of them all individually. You go, okay, this hotel owner, what's he about? And what does he think about these cultists who are taking up the third floor? And this herbalist, what's his story? Is he happy there in town? Did they do something weird? It's not just, you know, this leads to that leads to that. Because if you think about it, there's all sorts of people and places that were affected by the presence of that. And any one of them could be the first thing you encounter. Mm -hmm. So when I, um, 
and I don't do a lot of investigative mystery stuff. But in Day Trippers, there are some big, long-standing mysteries that we occasionally learn a little bit more about. What I do, I don't know if I have an example. No, I have an example, but I don't, I don't show it to you. It's got spoilers, Day Trippers spoilers on the whiteboard. <laughs> right. um, but what I do is I just, I basically, I'll list a bunch of information. This is not real information. I'm just saying you know, line, line, line. It's just information that can be known. I'm not even telling you, I'm not even thinking too hard about where you'll learn it from. It's easier to put things in the mouths of people because people can be pressured in different ways, different skills, than to put it like in a, in a book, in a box, on a shelf where you have to find the shelf, choose the book, find the right page. You know, that's Call of Cthulhu type shit. Core doesn't go that way. So I come up with a list of information and I put little boxes next to each one so I can check them off when the players have learned that. But I don't, I don't usually I don't really think too hard about where they're going to learn it from until we're playing. And I keep looking at it while we're playing. And, oh, they've just cornered one of the cultists, and they've got him in an alley, and they're threatening to beat him up. Huh, I haven't told him that thing. Okay, I know what he says. Check that off, and I say it. There's no order on this list. It's just dropping information wherever it makes sense. And it depends on what you roll. And sometimes you'll guess it yourself, and I'll go, well, you got that one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's that's one of the things that we've talked about especially me and john in in developing corthulu into an overall system um is you know in in general you know if you look on any any website that deals with rpgs whether it's drive through or itch or dm's guild or anything like that the majority of the content is adventures right like that's kind of what people can write for that's what and but like you're saying like the the adventures that come from core are reflexive like they they're created almost spontaneously you can have certain elements that are baked into the world that will feed into the story but it's difficult to write an adventure ahead of time that doesn't counteract the 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 core of core right and but it's a lot like the setup of a movie right i mean if you You describe, uh, you know, I saw this movie. It was really good. Um, I don't want to tell you about it because no spoilers, okay? But I really think you'll like this movie and you should see this movie. And your friend goes, well, what's it about? Well, again, you don't want to give me spoilers, but you want to tell them the genre, the characters, a little bit what they're trying to do and why it's hard. Mm. That's the first act. Yeah. The gym sets up the first act. Here's all the shit that's that's around. Um, But... Some of it you might not even find. Yeah. Which means that it's better for me to keep that information on a separate piece of paper, right? Not linked to this description of this guy or this guy's room, but just floating out there in info space, waiting Mm -hmm. for you to make a role that justifies you learning it. Simultaneously, you're moving around my little map of the town here. uh, But the map of the town is kind of like, that's your horizontal control. And this is more about my vertical control. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, you're des- you're describing where we go and in what order. That's completely up to you. I'm I'm not railroading, um, but I do get to have a hand in choosing which moments information gets revealed to you, and that's where the tension comes from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean that's the, one of the big things that we talk about is in if you're writing an adventure, and you know we're, we're primarily talking about pre 
you know, me and John talking primarily about pre-written stuff, something that you can write down and give to a person, um, you know, potentially sell or market or whatever like that. And the golden age of interest book is, is, is what I would point to as an example, right? Cause that's that? where I took the golden age adventures book for day troopers. Mm, yep. Cause that's where yep. I take 16. They started out as linear stories and I turn right. them into what I call plot fields. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, yeah. you can, I give you in each of those, I give you three suggestions for like, here's ways you could work the players into this story. Mm-hmm. Like if it's a dream world, and that's pretty easy. You're exploring dream worlds and you decided to right. check it out. <laughs> um, but I usually try to come up with three different, very different ways that you could like, you know, you, you meet in a tavern, whatever you could, right? But, three different ways that, that a GM could pull people into this particular storyline. Mm-hmm. Um, and not all of those ways necessarily put them in the position of the, of the protagonist from the written story. In fact, sometimes I'll put you in the position of the antagonist. I don't know what you're going to do. It's your table. It's your group. So the campaign, or the game rather, that adventure will arise from the same reality as the story that we read. In fact, the, the text of the stories, including the book, they're all public domain. I only use public domain stuff. So they're all in there. You can read the original story. See how that went. But when you approach the game, I give you a plot field. It's a bunch of circles and arrows sort of scattered around. I have no idea which angle your players are going to address it from, who you'll meet first or whatever. These are the NPCs in motion. Here's what they want. Here's where they're going. Here's who they hate. Here's what they're doing. Here's what they're doing in response. Mm -hmm. That's going to happen whether the players are there or not. Yeah. So you can't call it. You can't really call it an adventure. I mean, I call it a plot field. But if you want to market it, I think you might call it an adventure setting. Mm, right. And that's, you know, so that's one of the things. And one, actually, now that I, so bringing the conversation that me and John has had about Corthulu, and it's actually now, it's making me think it's um, with uh, Welcome to the WWA, how it actually would work pretty well with that and how the basic structure of like, at least, you know, I think me, me and you, Kurt, are in the same position where we haven't watched wrestling in a really long time. <laughs> but but it works um, where uh, if you wanted to get a little more structured in terms of because you like you said, that's more of like a, a setting, like giving somebody the setting to then develop adventures within. If you wanted to give somebody an, an adventure to actually run in, almost developing it as a a three act structure. And you could, as you said, you know, like the, the general concept that you give somebody, if you don't want to give them a, you know, a no spoilers intro to a movie, you explain to them basically the first act. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you could have, you know, so that's what you have in the adventure. You say, okay, this is the general, this is how you could bring in the players or whatever you want to do. And then this is generally what should happen in the first act. And then you give them a, and then you say, okay, once you feel comfortable or once the players have, you know, the characters have discovered certain things, you know, as you have with your, with your list, like once you've checked off like three of these five things or whatever, you know, then, you know, you can move into act two where things get ramped up and they've now discovered things and the story evolves. And then once certain things have happened in act two, now you move into act three, which is the, you know, the finale of it with the, you know, the conflict, the big conflict arises. You have the, you know, the fight with the BBG or whatever kind of whatever you're playing. That's when they discover the 
big Cthulhu monster wizard thing, whatever. And while thinking about the narrative part of uh, Core Complete, uh, I've been doing a lot of thinking about like different narrative structures. I like the Harmon Circle. I use it, but I'm I'm going to I'm going to break down and approach different narrative structures. And what you're talking about here, when it comes to acts, it could be uh, character based. It could be uh, node based. A, mm-hmm. a node is either a location or an NPC of dramatic significance, uh, or it could be event-based, like something uncontrollable, right. like the war uh, flips the other way. Mm-hmm. Right. So chapter two feels very different from chapter one because the war was going good for us in chapter one, and then the whole situation in the background changes in chapter two. And now, so that's event-based, right? So the way you break down the make act one feel different than act two, make act two feel different than act three. You have a lot of freedom there, too. You can base it on a right. character, like an NPC went through a major change of heart. You could base it on an event that happened, like, oh, the Demogorgons had now mutated to the next stage. Right. Or you can make it on a node. You could say, okay, chapter two begins when the players make it to Rivendell. Right, yeah. It's all up to you. Yeah. You can still do it. You can be flexible up to that point. It's like a pinch point where now... Yeah. Everything changes. We end one session, we start the next one. It's going to feel different. Right. And it's funny because the the thing that also made me think of it with WWA is that's how like a story arc in wrestling. That's how like you have two characters, you have two wrestlers that are, you know, either working together towards the same goal or they are, you know, enemies going after the title or whatever like that. And so they have the conflict and then something turns where something happens and the the conflict is escalated and it's all this behind the scenes fighting and arguing and everything and then the third act the final part is like the big fight the you know the actual wrestling between the two of them the thing that's that called a blow off me, jesse it's called a blow off in wrestling. there's a word oh, sorry, for it the resolution okay. of the final thing is called yep. a blow off perfect wow. there you go Shit. the lingo i fucking love the lingo okay so like that's one of the things i mu- i find most fascinating about wrestling is that that level of fakeness right that the kayfabe story and then behind the scenes there's actually a it may be a completely different story going on and that oh, yeah. is what i would love to see like elicited more in in the wwa game that feeling that there's you know here's the way we we treat each other in public and then behind the scenes and like you're sort of maintaining two levels of fiction the whole time it's two games in one really i mean that's kind of how that, and that's kind of how wrestling is in the in the first place like yeah, you can right. ha- you could have these you know tag teams and they look like the best of friends and they've been wrestling for 10 years and but they hate each other's out, guts yeah come yeah come to find out real life like <laughs> One cheated on the on the other's wife, or you know, one exactly. is one is the wife, and they and cheat and like he cheated on her or something like that, or yep. you know, just there's lots of different behind the scenes things. You know? Yeah, I mean that's yeah. what's great is that it could it it can go a bunch of different ways. Where like you said, you have two people who on screen are best of friends, but behind the scenes they fucking hate each other's guts, or. The, you know, the opposite could happen where, you know, they're supposed to be enemies and they hate each other, but they're like they go out to dinner and have drinks with each other afterwards all the time or their relationship on screen could also be exactly how it is in behind the scenes where like they really do get along all the time or they really do hate each other's guts. And that also plays out on screen to the point where yeah, plus the, tension have between the hitman two- hearts spitting on people. 
<laughs> my, my terrible Josie and the Pussycats example. I mean, they have to go solve the murder or return the queen's crown or whatever. But then they always have to do it before the show because, oh, my God, we've only got 15 minutes to make it back. <laughs> we still have to perform. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. The tension between the two different stories is fucking awesome. Oh, yeah. Well, and there could even be a third thing, which I've seen in real life, where it's like, you know, this the heel or whatever is playing this character that's, you know, really giving it to the to the face. So like the bad guy versus the good guy. And then in real life, you know, people are like, God, this guy is a real dick, you know, and then they're like, no, they have to, like, take the time to be like, no, this is actually my character. I don't really think that. You know, <laughs> you should die in a fiery car, a car crash. Like this is just this is my persona. Like you've that believed it to the point where you shit. think that I am really thinking somebody should be harmed. You know, right? Yeah. yeah. Like actors who play a bad guy in a soap opera, they'll get attacked in the street by old ladies. Yep. Yeah. I mean, they do call wrestling soap opera for guys. So yeah. that's basically. <laughs> yep, exactly. Well, Kurt, why don't you tell us what is the WWA about? Why did you choose woodland creatures as opposed to just like going whole hog and, you know, doing like a straight up wrestling game? What, well, because what's about it? <laughs> I think what I wanted to do. Well, it's funny because originally what I wanted to do is I wanted to make this into a board game. I wanted to make a uh, fuzzy creatures wrestling kind of little cutesy board game i thought god that's that just sounds like it'd be fun you know because you mm. saw these other little board games where it was like oh they're like, you know fighting each other kind of like almost like fantasy style faction stuff in this game called root and they have a mm-hmm. bunch of other games and stuff like that and i was like gosh i really want to do something like that but make it simple and i think i even said like i gave a bunch of options online i was like oh i really want to see how these you know which you know something which is the thing that i could do and the thing that most people were like they were like woodland creatures and wrestling that kind of sounds fun i was like okay good well i want to do that and then i think i actually got a message from todd and he's like i think you should make a game like a role-playing game you know using core i think that's how it started out sorry i have a terrible (laughs) memory when it comes to these things but i think that's how it started you know and i was like yeah i could do that you know because i feel like no i haven't i haven't actually made a board game i've I've act, I have a, like a ton of board games that are sitting off to the side that I need to finish one day. <laughs> but uh, I feel like for role playing, it's it, it's weird because a lot of people will probably say like role playing games are hard to make. I I don't think so. I think that you can make a role playing game like anytime. Now, whether it's a good role playing game, that's something <laughs> else all in itself. But I've seen even like the smallest of role playing games that are like probably I want to say two paragraphs long, and mm-hmm. that's and I've and I've seen ones that are just phenomenal that way, you know. Yeah. And I wanted to take a game that could be like that, take a game that could be a an easy one that you could just pick up and play with with the core rules. Of course, the core the core micro rules are really easy themselves, and take this and put it on it. But also, I wanted to do it where I think this is something I talked about before. It's like, or I did, I didn't want to keep things in a box. So I thought, you know, with having these woodland creatures and wrestling and like, I even said it, I think at the end, like I was like, you don't have to have it just be these couple of things. I'm like, you could have it like, instead of the woodland creatures wrestling in a woodland area, well, let's just say aliens take over. They 
beam them up there in space now. And all these woodland creatures are all of a sudden just out of their element and now they're wrestling in space. Like I just wanted to do something that is kind of silly but also kind of fun and be like a quick pick up and play kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um and now that Todd has actually asked me to uh, kind of explain some different things about wrestling and kind of come up with a couple of scenarios, got people going, it's it's uh, gotten my juices flowing a little bit. Now, whether I have the time to do it after, you know, being <laughs> exhausted from, you know, working for the man, that's another that's another thing in itself. But. So but no, when, I think coming up yeah. when I took day trippers and stripped it down and created core micro, that was that was one of the things I wanted to be able to say. And I say so I don't remember how I worded it in the marketing materials, but um, but yeah, if you. If you can trust the basic mechanics of, of this system, you've played it a couple times and you know how it works, then I really do think you could just take any story that you just read or a movie that you just saw and fucking stat it up for core in like 30 minutes and run that thing. Yeah. I wanted it to be that easy. So a guy like you going, what, what do I do with my woodland creatures wrestling idea could like turn into a core game really quick. Mm-hmm. And you did. I really you know, feel it's like when you when you mentioned, you know, when you talked about like you know, the kind of the absurdity of taking woodland creatures and throwing them into wrestling, I, you know, a few things first in my mind. You've already mentioned two of them, Mouse Guard and Root. And then the other one that I thought of was uh, a board game called Stuffed Fables, which oh, is yeah. and yeah. yeah, and you always and like the, the, the premise behind all four of those things basically are taking you know, real life kind of serious things, but like mm-hmm. you, you, you add, you inject animals in there and suddenly it, it brings that level of absurdity that allows you to play with it more. Mm-hmm. I feel like you can take these serious topics or whatever you're doing, but, but making it into animals or stuffed animals or whatever you do, uh, allows you to, uh, to, to not, to men, uh, consciously not take it as seriously and allow your subconscious to kind of take over a little bit more so you can delve into these topics uh, a little more freely. So yeah. I loved, I love that you, that you brought that up and it kind yeah. of like mirrors the two. Well, and one of, one of the things I really wanted to do also is kind of open people's mind to using the woodland creatures as, part of the story as far as mm-hmm. their physicality and their yes. how they are. So like if you're mm-hmm. wrestling yep. a porcupine, like how the hell am I going to wrestle you wrestle this porcupine? It's going <laughs> right, to yeah. shit out of me. So I got to figure out a way yep. to maybe, you know, find its, you know, find its front and keep it in front of me all the time and just find a way to kind of, you know, take it down without it, you know, really, you know, taking me to town and possibly losing an eye, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. Or yep. like, you know, having a deer go versus a duck, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, as absurd <laughs> as it sounds coming out of my mouth now, as I say it, but it's just like, like, how is, how, how is that going to actually come out? It's just like, if you're watching real wrestling, it's like that big, you know, eight foot tall guy versus the, mm-hmm. you know, five foot two, nothing guy that's going to, you know, try to go at the kneecaps until the big yep. guy takes them by the neck and throws them through the ring, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. You and, have, and, you and have Corbin a bear was, versus a chipmunk. How's that going to work out? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we were talking about earlier about like the level of specificity, the level of detail, how, how grain size and the dice skills and all that kind of shit. Like how much, how much detail do you really need? Um, 
and I, I didn't actually say it, but I guess I'll, I'll say it here because maybe it's clear from the way that we're talking. We always describe cinematic stuff when we're talking about core games, and one of the reasons is it's not a real-world simulator, right? It is a, it is a, a comic books and TV and movies simulator. Uh, and I think that wrestling, for that reason, for wrestling with all of its kayfabe and you know, spectacle, uh, totally feeds into that, you know? It's, it's that wacky and flexible kind of logic. It's not, you know, I mean, we hate it when a movie or a TV story, like, breaks logic completely. But we will give it a substantial amount of leeway if it kind of makes mm-hmm. sense and we love the hero. Yep. And that's the kind of shit that, that happens in a core game. It's actually not easy for a PC to die in core. But it is easy for a PC to get wounded in a dramatically significant way. Mm-hmm. Reggie. Because you get story out of that. Right. You know, uh, it's, this isn't a game about killing people. Did they die in my dungeon? I don't fucking care. No. Uh, we're here to tell a story, and I don't know what it is yet. Mm-hmm. So the, the purpose of the purpose of the system is to is to give you lots of prompts so that we can together make this make this story happen. Yeah. Anyway, Todd, I'd argue with you on one thing you said. You even said oh. that core is a story simulator. I would say that core is more of a story realizer because you're not even simulating a story the in core. Core is is simply will, a base will, to help will, you realize what the I will story is. Accept about. this. I will accept this critique if we back up the tape because I think what I said was genre simulator, and that I'll stand by. No, um, okay, I'll give you that. <laughs> if I said story simulator, then I misspoke because it is a story generator. Yes, there you go. Exactly. Um, but what we're simulating is not the real world, but instead. Mm-hmm the real world of some genre or style of movies or books or television or comics or cartoons. Um, and I don't mean that you, you have to like literally picture it that way. I just mean the kind of logic where heroes get away with stuff and dramatic changes are actually desired and the norm. Yeah. I think uh, one of the examples that kind of popped in my head is like, and just because this is the only thing I can think of at the time, like say like a bunch of friends are in a bar or a bunch of friends are like someone's house and one person tells a story and they're like, yeah, we were at a bar and you know, everything was going great. And then all of a sudden just, there was just a brush up and they just like all of a sudden just one lady just socked another lady in the face. And then it just went apeshit from there. And then you'll have somebody off to the side, like be like, oh, but I remember it's weird, but you were watching that. But I was watching there was some guy and he was drink, he was leaning on his chair and he's drinking and all of a sudden he fell over. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh, oh, my God, I just shit my pants. And they were like, wait a minute, what? I missed that. You know, that? yeah, you missed it because you, wa- you were watching that. And then another person's like, yeah, well, you know, I was get I was getting dumped by my wife. You know, that kind of thing. Like we were we're going to get divorced. You know, it's like it's like one of those things where it's like, you know, everybody is kind of telling the story, even though one person is leading that story, everybody else is kind of contributing to kind of making that world kind of come alive. You can affect each other too. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you're rarely going to correct each other. 
which is what what often happens in those parties. No, 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 you're remembering it wrong, dude. <laughs> <laughs> but that could be a yes, but could be one of those things. Oh yeah, that happened, but this happened. No, that kind of thing. Well, but the general idea is that okay, I I want to generate story ultimately. That's and and stories need meaning. And meaning comes from people connecting their emotions to things. So I want to build a machine that lets people connect their emotions to imaginary things in as many different ways as possible, because we're as many different kinds of stories as possible, right? Look at the TV, and we need more channels, more channels. We need more channels. We want more variety, more stories, more possibilities, more characters, more heroes. And even if they're formulaic, even if we've seen the story before in spandex, now we're watching it in a woolly coat. But uh, that's okay. It's okay. We we like stories we've seen before too. It's okay. We want variety and difference and creativity, but we also like the genres and the predictability and the and the arc. <laughs> I want to create a machine that lets people make up anything, right? But I want it to kind of make sense, following our logic of entertainment media. And I don't want to tell you how to run your game or build your world, right? The point of core is to give you a system that's so simple and so flexible, you could bring any world to it. And your players, see, it's not just about, here's where we veer from trad, going all the way back to Jesse's first thing, right? In a trad game, the GM buys all the books, reads all the shit, draws all the maps, knows all the info, reveals it as it goes. The GM is like the one who does all the work, spends all the money, has all the dice, and is in command and control of everything. Yeah, we're, we're leaving that. We're leaving that behind. Uh, I just want to be able to, like, get my friends on a chat or call some people over with, like, half an hour's work based on a cool movie I saw a trailer for yesterday. And I have no idea where the story is going to go because that's not what it's about. I think this world is cool and my friends are fucking creative geniuses. I want to build a system that lets my friends be the creative geniuses that they are. It's not about selling a guy a book so he knows that cultist leads to Nyarlathotep. <laughs> Bless you. And maybe I'm missing out on a, on a golden marking opportunity. I don't know. I mean... But linear plot is not what gets me off. What gets me off is, is an emerging experience that happens between the minds of the people at the table. And yes, the GM does have a special role, like, a, like a, the therapist in a group counseling session or uh, the facilitator uh, at a general assembly. These are, they don't really have rank over you, but they have a different job. Right. And their job is part of their job is keeping it going if it lags, uh, keeping it moving if it slows down and eliciting your your feelings and your feelings and your feelings to make sure everybody's getting in. And I think because it's not about buying a story. Right. It's about eliciting that from live people at a table who I don't know when I write the book. And I think core does a good for for specifically what Todd was saying. You know, I think I don't have I don't have any worries if I write something and we're going to go play with this group that they're going to fill out the fluff or the story because everybody's pretty imaginative and creative. Right. So Cord lets John and Jesse and Kurt run wild with their own imagination. But also, if you're playing with a group that people aren't very good at that, they're not good at yes anding or no bot or you know, that kind of thing, the, the, 
the system allows the roles to then guide them and kind of pull that out of them. And I think that's, you know, we always joke around that, you know, we say we're this, this is going to take one session. It never does. Right. It always goes two, <laughs> but we're never going to shut that down because everybody's enjoying it. And there's, there's new stuff coming into it. But also if you're playing with a group where you're like, wow, this session is going to be over in an hour, the dice can then guide them to expand that and pull that out of them where they're like, okay, you swung and you hit, but the mechanic says, okay, you've hit, but there's a consequence to that, whether that's positive mm-hmm. or negative. Now you have to describe that, you know, in, in games we've played with Jesse, uh, it's okay. Well, I rolled, I hit, it's this much damage. That's no fun, right? You want to, I jump up, I spin around. I'm, you know, there's, I, I had a, a, a decent role so maybe my first wing gets blocked but the second one hits you know the the system allows you to then pull that out of people if they're not if they're not good at doing that if they're not if they're not feeling it at that time or they're 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 saying okay my character's stuck i can't think of anything but you know the well you've hit but you've got to do something else so it isn't just the rote i roll i hit there's damage and then you know i back up so that's that's the that's the one good thing i like about it because sometimes i feel that <clears throat> i get stuck not doing that and part of creating it and the, the the system kind of forces you to do that so that's that's a good thing to prod you along well, you only have to think to of half a story yeah <laughs> right it right, depends yeah. whether you're the gm or the player right yeah. <laughs> but uh the player because the player is going to say their own positive ones yeah GM is going to say the negative ones. Yeah. So that means the so if the player gets a yes and, they're going to tell you what the and is. If they get a no but, they're going to tell you what the but is. But if it's a yes but, the GM tells you what the but is. Yeah. If it's a no and, the GM tells you what the and is. So in that sense, the GM is always, I don't want to say adversarial, right? But the GM is the one who's thinking about the bad shit that might happen if you <laughs> fuck this up. Right. So as a GM, you only have to think about the, what happens if they fuck up. Right. The bad. The player is the one who's responsible for thinking about the good. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think if you ask a player who has like no experience at all and you, you say, oh, yeah, you did the thing. And another good thing happens. What is it? I think it's easier to make up a yes and than than to butt yourself. Oh, yeah, because you don't want to be – if you're a character, you don't want to say, okay, well, my arm falls off. You know, you always want the positive <laughs> outcome. So it's the GM's it's the GM's role to do that. Okay, you did it, but there is going to be a negative outcome, right? Because any player is going to say, well, my negative outcome is I get three extra wishes instead of just one, right? You know, they're always going to try to save their own skins. So. Yeah, and I think that if, well, I, if, I told you, uh, if I told you you got a yes but and you have to tell me the but, that you just rolled. Well, now, all of a sudden, your mind gets tangled. If you're an ethical person, your mind gets tangled up going, well, how far can I take this? I mean, I don't want, you know, where's the line? It's hard, right? Whereas if I, if I tell you, yes, and, even if you said the most ridiculous thing, you said, and, the enemy drops dead right in front of my eyes. Like that. Well, we all get a good laugh. And if you know, in a certain game, if we're down to the wire, I might even agree with you. But <laughs> even if I even if I don't agree with you, I recognize that as a joke. We all have a good laugh. And I say, mm-hmm. tone it down a notch. And you say, uh, uh, you know, and you say something more reasonable, like I hit him for an extra hit point or um, I hit him right in his old war when he goes down. Mm-hmm. It's easier to make up an and than it is to to cut your own 
your own success. And if you go too far, it sounds funny and it's a joke. We all get to blow off a little steam. And if you don't go far enough, it's also kind of cool. You can just add some color. Sometimes you can't even think of anything. It's like, okay, well, I landed the helicopter exactly where I needed to land the helicopter. And the GM goes, and what? And my hair looks great. Right. Yeah. Well, this. Yeah, and I think just to speak to Kevin's point, because you know he he's offhandedly referencing our D and D game. Uh, I feel again because at least you know a few of us have played so much core that that infuses even that game where we do tend to you know, go that extra mile. And sometimes you roll the dice first to see like, all right, well, is this description going to make sense? Right. You know, I run up the, you know, wushu style, run up the tree and dive and spin with my sword. Ah, fuck. I roll a two. Right. (laughs) So, Like, you know, maybe roll the dice and then, you know, express the fiction. Right. Cause it's going to be determined by that die roll. But, but I feel like we're in that headspace when we play games now, no matter what those games are, it, it's just colored everything, but, but it is difficult in, so I'm going to jump back to what you were saying before about the, the plot fields and everything else to, to sort of break the mold of, okay, well, I got to go from A to B to C and, you know, I have this logical three acts story and I kind of know where everything is going. It, it's hard to break from that habit because in a traditional we're adventure just so module, used to do yes. that. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're making up your own world, um, you probably just wrote it as a, as a as a sort of a scattered list of objects in the first place. Just let it remain a scattered list of objects. Because yeah. well, like, so there's a point, I, and the point there's a point in the story where the heroes must figure out that oh I don't know that the that the herb they got they they got something called moonbane, and moonbane corresponds to this god, and suddenly that's important. Like we need to make that connection somehow, and I haven't figured out how. But I know that that's a thing. It's on my list. But honestly, as long as the players aren't sitting still in their hotel room, and by the way, I can think of ways to make them move. As long as they move around, come on. The GM can come up with a not insane way to put this information somewhere they happen to find it. Mm -hmm. So you've got your info. It's just in a different order. And you're not railroading anybody. Right. Well, but even the adventure that that I'm working on, that a couple of these guys are playing, and even though it seems to be on the outside somewhat linear, and, and in some sense I suppose it is, any of the locations, you know, other than the starting location, is is on the table in a theoretical field. They could go anywhere to do the you know to do the things right. Like they're not being driven from place to place, even though it may seem that that's the case you know what i mean like it's open to where they go some of those things unlike what you're saying some of those clues or actions or whatever may be sort of tied to certain locations but if they wind up not going to that location at all either they don't get that bit of information or you just take it and you throw it somewhere else like you're saying Mm -hmm. oh they bump into some guy who bumped into the whatever and like oh yeah i saw this weird guy and he was mumbling something about moonbane or whatever the fuck then you can always just you know recycle that clue from another location if it doesn't seem like they're going to go there at all or if it's really not important for them to solve it hey you just let it go well i don't yeah i mean that's the thing i think 
you're in in discussing linearness linearity i don't know how you'd put it but um I think linearity you know, sounds right linearity i like that um i think having a a three-act structure doesn't yeah technically means that you're moving in a line ish but just because you're you have kind of an arc that goes from point a to point b to point c doesn't mean that it's linear. You're still not railroading. You're not making them go anywhere. It's just right. there. There is a plan. Like even like in in an in an adventure, technically, you know, usually there's going to be a bad guy or something else on the other side of the characters, right? It, there's a plan there. That person or that thing or that group or whatever is going to move in a fashion that they believe is going to happen, right? And so having that you know introduction to escalation to conflict is just a general general motion of a story and right. so this, this having is, that having that planned out into certain aspects doesn't that generate stories right what does story exactly. mean when i say that well it already means all the shit that you just said we know this yeah. like if you right. i mean it might take some work to elicit that from the average person on the street, but intuitively they already know it, right? A story exactly. is a series of events narrating a change of something over mm-hmm. time, right. uh, which has a beginning, a middle and an end. And from that story, you draw a meaning because the end mm-hmm. is what tells you what happens if you start at the beginning and do what the hero did. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's how you get meaningful. So that's how we relate to the world. Humans. I mean, um, What's his name? Uh, Harari. Yuval Harari um, has this great rap that he does over and over again every time he's interviewed anywhere about how uh, humans are like the the narrative ape. This is the way we think of things uh, from our own lives to our countries and our histories and our cultures, our ethnographies and everything. We remember things by creating a little narrative in our head. It, it doesn't, doesn't really matter if it's true or not, right? Like... Most Americans walk around with this little narrative in their head about, you know, land of the free, home of the brave, you know, shining beacon to all the huddled masses and all, all this. Just a narrative. It's not a story, but stories come from it. Stories come from assuming it because we all assume these stories. We know it's what a story is. It has things with the beginning and middle in it. So when I say the, sto- the, the system is a story generator, I guess I haven't spelled out explicitly that I mean you can sit down with the intent of doing a thing with a beginning, middle, and satisfactory end. <laughs> and this system will help you do it. And, you know, what's funny, too, is, and I think this is in conversations that we've had kind of behind the scenes, uh, and p- potentially an insight into what will be the GM's guide, um, or part of the GM section, at least. Uh, but a lot of the advice that we get from Todd about how to run core and what goes on and everything is just really good general GM advice. And it's, and it's stuff that we've heard from, uh, or at least I've heard from other sections about how like, you know, as you said, for some people, D and D is the only RPG that exists. And so a lot of people are looking to, 
to to mold that into different things and so a lot of people are like oh well you know if you know instead of a static dc you you have like a yes and or a no but and depending on where they fall and you do this and this and you know more narrative combat and everything and everything that they say is what core does <laughs> and and it's it's a very interesting that all of the advice that I hear people give about how to be a better DM or how to run a better game um, is is the advice that y- that you give on how to run core better and their mechanic in their it's advice that then is reflected mechanically from the system. So it's almost yeah. like core is the the living embodiment of like good GM advice. <laughs> well, I hope so. I mean, I don't know if I, you know, it's, it, that's rather, rather egotistical of me to say it's the embodiment of good. GM yeah. In the same way that uh, apocalypse world is the embodiment. Isn't Baker. GM, very much to embody, uh, to, to make core, uh, body, uh, exhibit, suggest, uh, and 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 definitely not contradict uh, my own beliefs about the GM's role the way that I see it, mm-hmm. and I would never say that that's the only way for a GM to be. Oh no, absolutely, yeah. I kind of had to make up a word, right? Like I'll call myself an experientialist narrativist, and now you know I have to spend fifteen minutes of your life explaining what that means and why I did that, but. <laughs> But the fact is that you know I I know it is a it is a unique style, but it is a style that comes from thinking for years about what I really want at the table, mm-hmm. and the answers to those questions almost always have more to do with meaning, emotion, and style than they do with numbers. Do you use dice or cards? Do you big math or little math? Mm-hmm. The, the answers never come from there. That's not what, that's not where the enjoyment comes from. The enjoyment comes from the meaning, and the meaning has to do with the spurred creativity of human minds. So I want to give them that mm-hmm. and remove everything that's not helping. Yeah. No, and I think it's, that it's just, that's yeah. sort of like, like, like Vincent's principles make sense. If you're that kind of GM, you, you look at him and you go, well, of course, that makes sense. So if you're, right. a, if you're a narrativist who cares about the meaning and experience of your players, then you'll look at core or you'll look at the way that I run it and you'll go, oh, well, yeah, obviously. No. And it's funny, you know, one of the big, one of the big things you always hear is like, uh, you know, even though I'm not patting myself on the back, but uh, it's something I've done ever since I started running rpgs or D specifically but like with matt mercer and he does the you know every time they kill in you know a big enemy or anything like that he's like how do you do it and it's like that that yes and aspect and it's like you did it and then what and and it's like the potential for that is baked into every single time you run the you roll the dice in core <laughs> like you have the potential well, to, D&D, to, to you know, emphasize we were, yeah. we were talking about the, the difficulty levels and now in D D you you choose this right. you, you can choose a stat, an ability, tell the player to beat this DL. You're playing core right now, or cipher, or <laughs> one of them, you know. Okay. I mean, all of the good ideas that have happened in 5e are are actually uh they took a look over at what indie games have been doing for the last 10 oh, 15 absolutely. Years. 
Yeah, well, 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 because they were upset with that they were and losing. And that's what I was doing too. I mean, I was looking at Apocalypse World. <laughs> Um, and I see, I mean, it's not, it's not original with me, but it wasn't original with Vincent either. The whole idea of a uh, uh, fruitful void, put fruitful void wherever you can ask. You're going to have to questions. explain that one for me. <laughs> oh, a fruitful void uh, is the space left by a leading question. Hmm. Like in day trippers, when I say huh, there was something about that dream you had that really bothered you though, what was it? Okay. So the question is leading you into a place. I'm like pacing and leading you. And then I leave you with this open-ended void that you have to fill in. But it's fruitful. It's fertile because I've given it a feeling and a context. And you can probably come up with something. Yeah. Because the reason I put the word experientialist before the word narrativist is because, yes, I am attempting to make us an arc with a beginning, middle, middle, and end. Yes, this is character-driven changes over time. All that's true. But if it ever comes down to a conflict in my head between you having the smoothest narrative arc or you, the player, having the best emotional experience for you, like if you like being scared, then I want to scare you, right? If you want to feel comfort and safety, I want to make you feel comfortable and safe, right? For you, I will always go with the emotion even if it breaks the narrative because meaning doesn't arise if you don't connect with the character if you watch a tv show about a hero that you don't connect with that you don't care about it's hard to even remember what the story is you don't care what happens to him the only way you're going to get meaning out of this game is if you honestly care you're emotionally invested in your player character and i've done everything i can to blur the line between that character and you so I never want to break your emotional state. And if it deflates, I always want to fill it back up again. That is actually what's making you enjoy the game. That's the, the thing you can't get out of another medium, right? You can bond and identify with a character in a movie, but you can't feel what it feels like to make that decision and then, oh my God, I have to roll the dice. The tension of that decision in the story pulls the tension of the dice in your hand right now. You know, the dice are only there to support story. It, if, if there's nothing, if there's nothing uh, emotive or narrative, don't roll dice. Just say what you're doing. We usually don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so let's pause for a minute. We, we talked about WWA a little bit. Jesse, you've got one game out. You've got another game coming out. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Uh, well, they're they're full of tables. So... <laughs> You can <laughs> no. So uh, the first one uh, it, uh, stemmed from uh, my uh, lack of wanting to stray too far from the familiar, uh, and so I stayed <laughs> in the slightly medieval fantasy realm. And uh, it was, uh, you know, the the podcast the game that we are currently running monster hunt anyway is it was pretty much based off of that and even some of it was uh mechanics that i was kind of already using in terms of uh the hunt and all that kind of stuff and i basically just took them and and cored them um 
And so Monster Hunt is about hunting monsters. So, you know, you stray out into the wilderness, you track monsters, you do all that kind of stuff. You roll on a bunch of tables, you find out some stuff, and then eventually you fight, you know, giant, not kaiju style, but like dinosaur style, you know, sized monster stuff. Um, We've run it a a couple of times, actually, um, in a, uh, a, a differently named game um that i will eventually roll <laughs> wwa into i swear I don't believe um, it whatsoever <laughs> i mean you could say third time's a charm but yeah whatever <laughs> well look the second listen time, if it was we totally could, our fault <laughs> right if you we could if Kevin. i could actually yeah if i could run a session where introducing the characters takes less than an hour <laughs> then maybe we can actually get down into well, you're, it. Well, you're really going to have to get on our asses then, because I don't have to see that happening either. <laughs> right. Yeah, those characters we created uh, were pretty good talk, so. kind of, I think it'd be kind <laughs> of easy to approach it from the opposite direction. Like, I could picture uh, starting from Day Trippers and ending up on WWA World. That's like, that's a piece of cake. Oh, right, yeah. Well, that's what we were trying <laughs> for. <laughs> that's what I was trying for. Mm-hmm. But after three and a half hours. Yeah. <laughs> But uh but yeah no so I had that and um and uh and so yeah I've run it a few times and act in in running it I've made a couple alterations there's a second version up there now with um much more simplified wording um because as you said Todd you know I I I got that 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 GM haze and you always want to kind of uh you know max everything as much as you can and when running it and also talking to John um about it um you know ended up just taking it simplifying a bunch of the mechanics and and the word general wording of everything um so yeah that's out there uh download it if you want don't pay anything for it it's not worth it um but uh but then there's there's runners that is uh going to come out soon ish who knows we'll see (laughs) um but that is my uh detestment of um of medieval fantasy and huh. wanting and I'm done with it basically um I've I've run enough uh, my of my entire RPG life has almost been in that kind of genre and so I'm done with it and um it was a combination of kind of my my interest in um, in the day trippers world in that kind of technology level and, you know, and especially like ubiquitous city and what you've done with that. Um, and also my, my interest in, uh, in games, uh, like, um, oh crap. Why can't I remember the name of it? The one that's like, like future D and D where you're, where you're, uh, like people running missions to break into stuff and everything. Um, oh, Blades in the Dark? No. Oh, man, I can't Boy, remember. It, it must have really left a uh, it did. positive influence on you. can't even remember, really. Why you're looking at you, it, really. No, you're looking at ADHD brain that can't remember I, no, names me, of you're, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yep. You, um, oh, you're talking about no. Shadowrun. Shadowrun. Boom. Oh, there, there we go. go. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I you're, you're, you're looking while. at like, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's a combination of like shadow run of like running mission type stuff. And, um, 
And then, uh, yeah, for some reason, like mech suits and everything got tossed in there with my brain and everything. <laughs> That's fucking um, hysterical, man. One of the reasons it took me so long to think of Shadowrun was I don't see yeah. any Shadowrun in Runners at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that was more so like the uh, just like the, the mission-based aspect of it. You know, okay. in, in Shadowrun, it's like, okay, you get a mission – you plan for that mission, you do that mission, and then you return home and and get the reward. In okay, theory, right. but I mean, but so, so is that's top secret. So very true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Okay, yeah. so an adventure is a mission, basically. Exactly. Yeah, and then I mean, in and it, it, the the reason that I find those types of games interesting, you know, very similar to Day Trippers. In theory, Day Trippers is a single session maybe a couple sessions adventure type scenario right you get a mission or exactly yeah so you 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 get a thing you get a mission or you you want to discover a planet or whatever like that you get the mission you go to the mission you do some exploring you come back right but what you yeah, can if do you, if, your players, if your players go moments. with you when you prompt them along. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, yep. Then ideally uh, the last, the last die roll of every, uh, of every day tripper session should be the trip home. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and so uh, the, and the one thing that I'll, the, the one other thing that I was really interested in with doing runners was the, um, the shipbuilding act uh, segments of rogue trader. I actually really and and uh, to uh, to a similar extent with day trippers, um, although with day trippers it's far less crunchy than Rogue Trader. Uh, you know, it makes sense that it is. The day trippers inspiration was uh, Car Wars. Oh, really? Oh, so there we go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm gonna have to read up on that now. <laughs> um so with danger you know with road trader you know it had you know you have weights and sizes and it throws all in and you know power requirements and everything and i kind of wanted to the the balance even though there was you know lists of hundreds of things for rogue trader and you could plug everything you know pages upon pages upon pages um you know i was still very interested in that 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 kitschiness of it, of, you know, of building your own thing and making it yours. And, you know, this is, you know, this is my suit. You know, there are other suits, but no, no <laughs> other one quite like that one. Right, and, um, yeah. And the, yes, tri- the, yeah. the ships in day trippers are, are the same thing. They're like, right. if you get to the point where, or if you get a, um, client or a sponsor or whatever, uh, to where you can build your own ship. Mm-hmm you're you're legit invested in that ship and you make design decisions for the comfort of your imaginary person exactly yeah that ship is just as much an expression of the group's identity as your pc is exactly yeah i love that about uh, i I like games that do that that's why i loved that i absolutely needed to steal the something gave me that feeling in car wars when you built your own car and there was no other car like it yeah everybody you mm-hmm. at the same lists but only you decided to use you know a 979 dodge charger and put the guns this way right, right yeah <laughs> and every ship was going to be unique in day trippers and i love yeah. that about runners too because you were now you're invested in that suit you didn't just yeah. 
choose a bunch of weapons. You help design what you look like when you're out there being badass. Right. And that's actually one of the, one of the main reasons too. I, um, initially when I was designing, you know, the character sheets and everything like that, I was going to have one single sheet where you had your character stats up top and your, and your suit stats on the bottom. Mm. But ultimately I wanted to, make the suit feel like a separate character almost where you built that. It was like, like I said, it's unique. It's and, and it's a thing unto itself. And so that's why I ended up, you know, deciding to invest more space in the book, but give it, give it its own due. Yeah. I mean, actually, if you look at uh, car wars as, as an example, um, and I did play Car Wars campaign style. Um, you can do it, but your car is about 10 times more complex than you are. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah. The PC is like four numbers, you know, and, and a couple adjectives or something like that. It's, the PCs yeah. are dirt simple. And the car is like, you know, a sheet of paper and a notebook with like tabs and pointers. <laughs> um uh, but again, it's a chance for you to express your individuality. And whenever you put your creative energy into the thing, you're now emotionally invested in it. So anytime the GM can come up with a logical reason it isn't too much work, uh, it makes a lot of sense for you to build, customize, alter, modify, make a mark in the world, do it. Right, because it makes your players more invested in the world, and then from then on, it's like every time you get hypnotized, it's easier to get hypnotized. Every time you role play, it's easier to sink into your role next time. It's the same thing. Every time you step into a world you have affected, it's easier to feel your effect in that world. I had a character in my D and D campaign. He was a, a a cursed troll. I let him play a troll who was chosen by the god of war. This is like a level twenty campaign. Seriously, fucked up shit happened in this campaign. But the point I want to concentrate on is that when he he was sort of abandoned by his god at one point, it was a heart-wrenching experience for him. And he, he found an area on the map that was like a giant forest. And he went there and he spent weeks uprooting all of the trees in like a 10-mile radius. He was strong enough to do it. And I made him roll a bunch of them for a little while. And I realized, no, no, he's, he's going to clear this whole fucking area out. We just... We just went into downtime at that point. And he uprooted all of the trees, and then he formed, he dragged them to form a letter M. His his name was Moog, and he made a 10-mile-tall M on the map. Okay, it's big enough. <laughs> a hex is 10 miles across. It was one hex on a letter M. I, I put it on my world map. You can let your players go that far. If they're willing to go that far, you should let them go that far. When they make a mark on the world, that world is part of it. And anything you can do to customize it or baroque up that expression, it's a link between them and the world. It's an emotional bond. And that's really what you want. We don't talk about it much. We talk about the we use words like immersion, verisimilitude. We get very clinical. But it's about emotions. This is about emotionally bonding, emotionally manipulating each other into states that we find pleasurable. And part of it is the moment, but part of it is that arc, a narrative curve that makes sense. God, that feels so good. We love doing it. And this is a system that helps you do it with each other. 
and feel it. That's so that's one thing I had a I had a question before and and I think now is a good time to kind of to to use it of. So we were talking about before with the with the yes and and the no button and everything like that. And um, how what kind of advice would you give? Because we've it, it was difficult for us to kind of get into as players being able to have that little bit of narrative control. Um, and, you know, now we're kind of used to it and we're, we're prepared for it, but in, in people getting into core, say it's their, you know, their first time or second time getting, you know, playing, what advice would you give to prepare for being ready to, to take that, 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 temporary narrative control as a player as a and player. more importantly how to as a player yeah and uh because gms are kind of used to that right uh, <laughs> at least to um but as a player taking that that narrative control temporarily and, and as a secondary to that disconnecting it from that specific moment or action because i think that's one thing that even me and john and john still have issue with is a yes and can technically be used to control really not control but to to affect anything around you and it doesn't have to be tied specifically to that action at that moment true so what what advice would you give to kind of gradually or maybe just rip the band-aid off um of you know having that type of control as a player uh, for the player, um, some people, again, I'm going to draw another parallel to hypnosis. Uh, there are a lot of parallels between uh, game mastering, at least in an experiential sense. If you're an experientialist game master, you are probably already the sort of person who has thought or maybe even studied uh, a little bit of hypnosis you're interested in depth psychology, you have an interest in symbolism, and all this shows in your interest in literature and narrative structure. And uh, These are all kind of tied together. Even, even uh, magic, like uh, Kabbalah um, or um, the, the Golden Dawn, you know, these are f- symbolic ways to communicate rich, complex meanings. And so, people with a certain type of brain, you know, there's like a cluster of things they often tend to be interested in certain sort of uh, systematized uh, obsessive minds sort of go toward instantly bonding with the mechanics of a system. Those people are GMs. There's other people whose minds can quickly and easily sink into a suggestible state, like people who are easily hypnotized. Um, they're often very creative people themselves. There's a, there's a lie that like uh, that stupid people are easier to hypnotize and smarter people are hard. That's actually not true. Uh, the, the, the people who, who are best at going into hypnosis are actually fairly intelligent, um, creative people, uh, better if they've suffered some trauma in their life or have some experience with dissociation. So there are some people who naturally sink into a role. I'm answering your question, believe it or not. There are some people like a bell curve 
who sink into it immediately. Like the first time they role play, they understand intuitively where the boundaries of their character are and what the kind of experience is that the GM's going for. And that's like maybe, you know, the top 10%. And they just sort of think into it and know what to do. They will talk of themselves in first person when speaking in character. They will say, I, etc. At the opposite end, you've got people who have a really hard time sinking in. They'll always say he, uh, they, uh, they're probably more drawn to the, the math than to the, the feelings and experience. And my style might not actually work too well for them. They might want to argue with me about like arrow ranges or, you know, D&D type shit. They have to just relax. I, I'm not sure at the far end of the spectrum if this is even the game for them. But in the middle, you got most people. And most people, even if they've never played a narrativist game, they have seen hundreds and hundreds of movies and TV shows and comic books. They know whether they've thought about it or not. They have an intuitive understanding of symbolic and narrative logic. So all you really have to do is describe it to them like it was a movie. You, I li often, uh, literally, will you talk about the camera shot. I will talk about how the camera pivots and moves and zooms in or cuts to... Tell me what the next scene is. And you're picturing it like a movie. And for that reason, it's easier for you to go, oh, I know what the next scene is. So that works for me a lot to describe things in cinematic terms. This is something that the GM can do, but it's also something the player can do. If the GM's asking you a question, just tr try picturing it because this is a fiction first game. Don't look at your sheet. That's just going to confuse you. Don't look at your sheet. Picture what's happening in your head. This guy, this guy that we're saying you are, you know him, right? What's he feel like? What kind of guy is he? Oh, here we are. Here's the moment. What, what does this guy do? If they're feeling it and seeing it, you're just asking a very simple question. What does this guy do right now? What's the next scene you see? If they're, if they're the first kind of player, they'll already be there. They're already embodied. They'll say, I do this. So I always try to talk to players in their character's name. I always try to talk to players in their character's name. Because if I've got one of those people who's there, I don't want to break that. John always says he. So he can break it if he wants to. But I don't want to break his. You know what I'm saying? That's a question for him. So I always talk to you in your character's name. I want to keep you in there. If you're one of those people, I want to keep you in there. If you're not one of those people, I haven't harmed anything. You can say I, you can say he. It doesn't really change stuff. You may be picturing it through his eyes, or you may be picturing it like you're sitting in a movie watching it. I don't care. Either way, whatever works for you. But if you're picturing it, you have an easy time answering. It's just this one little question. What does this guy do in the next scene? Don't look at your numbers. Don't think about that. Just tell me what you see in your head. And then we'll roll it. Then we'll figure out what dice to use. It's fiction first. So I guess that's my best advice. Picture it in your head and just say whatever the next scene is. Don't think about dice at all. The GM will tell you. He'll figure it out. That's the GM's job. And I guess the big thing, too, is don't be afraid to fail, right? I mean, that's the – you're saying it's about the fiction. So it's re it really is what would the character do? Oh, it's hard yeah, to die. And let's face see, it, yeah. that in, in almost all media you've ever seen, one of the protagonists will do something wrong, put themselves in jeopardy. This usually happens in Act 3. Right? <laughs> it's part of it. Part of the learning experience is fucking up. It's hard to die in this game. But it is easy to get hurt and learn a lesson from that. And that's what we want. And that out in the Megamon game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, well, we should probably really move towards wrapping this up. We're pushing two and a half hours. Um, I do want to ask Kevin, um, since you did run a couple of scenarios that you created 
before Call of Cthulhu, as of yet unpublished. I don't. Had you played them before you ran them for Cthulhu, or was that like out of the box play test for that? Yeah. So I, I have a whole bunch of different ideas for different things I wanted to write, and those were two that I had gotten written. That I had gotten written. That's not terrible. That I had written. <clears throat> so I figured it would just slot in perfectly for the the Cthulhu stuff. So. Um, yeah, that, that was the first go. Everybody seemed to have fun. So <laughs> hopefully that was successful. Um, <clears throat> the, the ending of the second one we ran, I thought was really, really cool that we put the characters in a position where they can make a choice about what they wanted to do. And that was something that I hadn't really thought about when I wrote it. Right. That just came out from the gameplay. Mm-hmm. And I think John's character really played into what his, his character would have went through for life. So the decision he made, I think it worked out really, really good. And I think Kurt's character also played into his situation of his character's life. And I thought, I thought it worked out really, really well. So I was happy. That that scene was great. It's lovely when a plan comes together, right? (laughs) I know, but that's one of those, that's why, uh, that's why I prefer not knowing what the end is and going in with so much up in the air because Ultimately, um, if I knew what it was going to feel like or what I was going to do, it's kind of like a magic show. It's like oh, I rehearse my thing and I do my thing. That's not what I'm here. I want to be surprised too. You know, I want accidents to inform the fiction too. And when something like that happens, because you were open to it and John was open to it, it's just like click, click, these two pieces fit together. And oh my God, we've got a powerful emotional moment right here. Let's yeah. ride with it. Yeah. And uh, absolutely. I would say one thing that you recognized immediately that's very core is the moment that accident happened, you took it and made it the focus of the scene for the next minute because now John's feeling it. And that's the whole point. Yeah, it was really that was good. great I was really scene. Happy with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I really enjoy the way that played out. I don't know if you had intentionally chosen the rise and fall of the third rake, but as soon as it came out of your mouth, I knew what was going to happen. <laughs> it, it was it was perfect. I I, I loved that whole the, the whole way that played out. The ending was just going to be a more not wrote so wrote's the wrong word, but it was more of a if you guys decide to go with this choice, this is what happens. If not, this is what happens. But then making it pers- making it personalized, I thought it worked absolutely perfectly, and then. Just the fact of what John's character had went through in the First World War, which obviously the Great War, right? It, he didn't know it was the. Fir- I think we played that up saying the First World. Can War. Can I ask, was that a was there a life shaper tied to this? I don't know. I don't know. remember what his life shaper was. He had been a World War One vet for yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it might have been. It might have been something like life is cheap or something. I, yeah, I think that's what it been, was. There was yeah. Yeah, some something tied to his his war service, I think, and then giving him the option of not having to deal with all of that, and just when we started talking about the wars, I was just trying to think about those seminal works when when John's character had learned about. Well, there is there another war after this one? You know, that's <laughs> the war to end all wars. That was the book that popped into my head was Shira's book about the rise and fall of you know it's what, like 1,400 pages. Oh, so. it's huge. And the pages are real thin. Yeah. So it's a definitive <laughs> definitive history of that. So, yeah, I, I was I was super happy the way that played out. And each of the, char- the three characters, the decision they made 
kind of completely slotted in with how they were playing their character. So it was really, absolutely. Really absolutely. Again, again, that was a very, as a very core moment and you can design for those moments, right? You can, you can build a, a situation like that where you, you have no idea what they're going to say. And in a way it doesn't matter, but you prime it in such a way that whatever they do say is almost guaranteed to be psychic content, almost guaranteed to be emotionally meaningful. And then once they give that to you, if this is an ongoing campaign, it may be tied to a life shape or it may not. But because it's emotionally meaningful, you might want to note it down and then hit that note once in a while as a GN. It makes the character feel realer and stronger and deeper as a real human being. Like, you know, I don't whip it out every time, but I know that, you know, Jack Nash, also a character with a dark thing haunting him from his military past. And, you know, every once in a while, I'll, I'll tell him about a nightmare he has or a situation he's in that I'm like deliberately playing up to remind him of the time his squad got killed in the jungle and it was his fault. <laughs> so whenever a player gives you those moments, you're going to use them. So as a designer or as a module writer, you can put things like that in, you know, the uh, the the wishing well, the mirror that shows you your truest desire, uh, the book which when you look into it, it tells you the darkest thing about your own past that nobody knows. It's just fucking fruitful void, man. Here's a fruitful void for you. <laughs> Fill it in. Now, now, having run them, Kevin, are you interested in converting them to car? I know we talked about it a little bit. Is that something that you... Uh, you know, want to reshape then and release as adventures for core, or do you want to stick with, with call of Cthulhu? Or, no, or? So the only issue I have is, so I've written them all out. My biggest stumbling block block is to make sure they fit whatever format for core. Right. So whether it's stat blocks for each of the sections, right. So that that's where if, if there's another core scenario or adventure out there that I can see how it's laid out, then I'll just plug it over. So I wrote them obviously for call of Cthulhu because I wanted them to be Cthulhu. I didn't want them to. So that's why they're, they were call of Cthulhu. So yeah, I, yeah. yeah if, 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 <laughs> if someone has a template of how to, to coreify them, then I'll just plug it in. <laughs> so I'm just, so I have it all written out and all the stuff we have, it's just like, okay, for, Okay, now what do I have to put in here for core? You know, instead of role investigation, it's you know do the core roles, which is fine. So, you know, yeah, that's and John and I talked about it before. So, if I can if I can steal someone's already finished one and see how they've mapped it out, then I'll just do the same thing for those two and make sure they fit like a template of what it is for core for. I think well, that I don't. Okay. So far, no one's done this for core because again, okay. I, um, I've been releasing settings. Uh, right. And then it's kind of like the G this is a sandbox, right? You're, the GM's going to, the GM and the players are going to decide what the stories are. I'm giving you the setting. So there yeah. aren't any actually like what I would call quote unquote adventures for core, yeah. but there are adventures for day trippers. And so I'll, I'll choose, I'm not sure which one right now, but I'll choose a good example. How should I get it to you? Well, just if you put the link in the discord, I can go grab that because I'm on there right. or send it. But so that's, that, that's the only thing, right? So I want to make sure that that I I have it in a format that everybody's happy with, right? Mm. So I take out the investigation role or the sanity role, and I put in the core, the core pieces of it. You know, mm. the the equivalent role. So that's the only thing that that, that I would want to do. And then 
you know, and I, for the two of them, it's just I want to make sure that those sections, whether they're asides or, you know, detail, you know, hmm. GM info or character info, that kind of stuff. I just hmm. want to make sure it makes sense that it fits in with. Yeah. with and as I told John before, the only reason I read it for that, I wrote it for Call of Cthulhu because it was a Cthulhu game. So it wasn't a Delta yeah. Green game because it was in the 20s. Right. So. <laughs> What are you going to write it for, kind of thing? Well, even, right. So even no you know, talking, at the time. talking about the, uh, I don't, I don't mean to like keep bringing, like harping on or bringing up like three acts and stuff, but like only because it fits into what me and John were talking about for his adventure and all that kind of stuff, and it's just general narrative, you know, arcing. But like you know, it you could you know break it down into you know for for your the recent adventure that we uh, that we did with like the farmhouse and everything. The first act is getting the characters introduced and, you know, having that, that issue brought up with the radio and then discovering that. And once they have enough information that they have enough, their next lead, you know, act two is, you know, the, is going into the farmhouse and having all that happen, right. Kind of the exploration and everything of that. And then the turn into act three is when the weird stuff starts to happen. Yeah. Right. When, you know, the discovering of the body, when that alien comes down and everything. And that's all that's that's the turn that then, uh, you know, brings in all the conflict and brings you into that final down pitch. So an event, it's think, an event based structure at that point. You're basically exactly going, when, yeah. when the PCs generate this event, we flip in out two. Exactly. Yeah. And I actually event. think that that, you know, that that place that 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 structure plays in well to what we were talking about with Corthulhu about the ramping of sanity roles and like the, the, and so that, you know, the turns could even be associated with climactic moments that bring on enough stress that a sanity roles is, is needed. And it happens that that third act is when they then get compounded and they got, you just start getting slammed one after another with the build of that, you know, that arc into it. When we were talking about the different kinds of structures you might hinge on, I said node-based, event-based, character-based. Um, yeah. There was one more that dawned on me. You, you just kind of walked right into it, and that was uh, player-based, basically. You want to say experiential state-based, right? So you could, like, let's say you're doing a horror thing, and you know that you, they're down for it. They want to be scared. Yeah. You could hinge your axe on like, okay, act two happens the first time somebody gasps mm. at the table. Like, we will go into act three the first time somebody expresses discomfort. You could yeah. literally hinge it on something like that. Absolutely. Because so at think- that point, you know, like you, you, you talked about breaking that, you know, breaking down that barrier between player and character and how, mm-hmm. you know, we all are basically experiencing a character through our own moments and our own experiences anyway. And so, especially in a horror type game or something like that, you're not trying to elicit fear out of the character. Like you're trying to get that feeling out of the player. Right? You hope so. so Otherwise you're playing like having, a Scooby-Doo. Having those turns happen when it, uh, with, with a, a character's with a player's realization or a player's action makes a lot more sense yeah right and that is why i think core is a great match for cosmic horror but even more than much more than underlined three times in red trigger warning Mm. 
because this game will not only take you to uncomfortable places and, and talk about, you know, disgusting things, but the mechanics of the game, if done right, will literally dive deeper into your subconscious and engage you on an emotional level. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would not run anyone in a horror scenario at all without letting them know beforehand this is going to be a horror scenario mm-hmm. and I run bleedy games. I'm I'm going to creep you out. I'm I'm going to scare you. Are you okay with that? Do you want that? <laughs> if you don't want that, we'll play something else. Right, and that should be standard procedure. <laughs> right? I mean, if you're well, not playing with your I think own if you're group. if you're playing D&D like if you're playing D&D 4 for sure, right? It's like you're about as emotionally involved as you are in chess. You're, you know, you're measuring and you're moving and you're doing math. <laughs> we don't have to worry about, but you know, in day trippers or in core, you know, the literally the game master is instructed to watch you for psychic content and reincorporate that, amplify it, and use it to bond you emotionally with your character and to get feelings out of you. Right? <laughs> uh, and it is, uh, it's. Like I said really early in, in the in the show, it's it's a it's a type of play. Uh, I'm not I wouldn't ever say that it's the type of play everyone should do or that it's the best for everyone. Uh, but if you're interested in deep immersion, if you like bleed, if you like uh, being creative and spontaneous, it's designed to facilitate all of those things and stay the fuck out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> I, f- I feel like we should really end on that, but man, I want to give Corthu a little plug too, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? In a way, we've been dancing around Corthu this whole time, yeah, right? Because yeah. it, it is more than than any of the other core games has come out, with maybe the exception of Daytrips. But you know, Daytrips gets weird and it gets all in your head. But Corthu has a very specific flavor in mind, and that's what we've been talking about: how to work with an open ended structure in a horror genre. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean it, Kevin's Kevin's done it. I've done it in different ways, yeah. and Corthulu is is the place to go for it. And I, and even with so, I mean, it, it's you know, so it's my homage to all those games, right? Like it's you know, Trail of Cthulhu and Fear itself, and Call of Cthulhu, and all that sort of stuff. All the games that we've you know enjoyed and played, but it is very you know, three X structure, you know, A to B to C, Clue Trail. You know, your your bad guys doing this thing, you know, summon summoning, you know. Yeah, it's not the act, but you know this because I use the Harmon Circle. It's not the acts that are a problem. Yeah. It's not even having beats. Having beats isn't a problem. Mm -hmm. Having beats is only a problem if you string them in a row and that's the only way. Right, right, right. Exactly. (laughs) And I don't, you mean, I haven't run it enough or created enough, you know, like singular adventures to run. So like, We've been running Corthulu as a series of one shots. There's no interconnection, even though there is, um, you know, an element for uh, campaign play. You've got downtime recovery. You know, the the trauma aspect of it is for longer term gameplay. You know, over mm-hmm. multiple sessions, not a single. You know, because one adventure may take two sessions, especially with us. Um, but, you know, it's not going to have that much of an effect on a character within that very specific time frame. But it does then begin to overall um, influence the way the character behaves or how you want to role play a character. Um, so we haven't really 
tested that I feel like, but I, I, I think it works, right? Cause that's just a role play thing. So like, if you're, if you're down for that, that works. Um, the, the shock stuff definitely works in the short term as it's intended to. Um, but, but as we had been talking once before, you could strip out all of the investigative elements and, you know, use Corthulu to run a slasher flick, you know, you're stuck in a haunted mm-hmm. house and there's demons because now the characters are surrounded by and butted up against the horror, the weirdness. So right. everywhere they turn is something that's fucked up, <laughs> you know, make a psyche roll. There's a, a dead body. There's, you see the guy in the corner. Oh wait, is that a shadow? Or is that, is that a person or whatever? Um, so, so you can, you can run yeah, it in, I, in, my, in my models. When I'm discussing the plot field, I'm always imagining, you know, a, a network of objects, you know, loosely connected and floating around. And then I always talk about, you know, the players coming in from any angle, but what mm-hmm. you're pointing out is very valid that actually the players might just be sitting there. Shit starts coming towards them. <laughs> <laughs> what I think the, the two that we played obviously were a bit more investigative heavy. And the first one we played especially, and that was the feedback we had was there was a lot of slow buildup to the end. The second one, we tried to do a bit more action in the middle. It's not just a straight Call of Cthulhu investigative. My biggest hit <clears throat> so, for that is, look, there may be times where you have to make an informational bottleneck. They suck. Yeah. Yeah. But if you find that your mo- your story, your module, your idea, I don't know. If you can't find a way around it, there's, you, you must make one piece of information that's like totally fucking critical and there's no way to proceed to the next thing until you get that. Then please make it mobile. Mm-hmm. Make it something you can put in different people's mouths or in a different place. Yeah. Yep. And I think or don't John- hide. Don't, my, my worst thing was when, when it's hidden. When it needs, when it it requires a role or a specific question or something like that from someone, yeah, yeah, if from somebody, and you basically spend half a session yeah. waiting for that specific thing to happen. Like yeah, if, exactly. if you if Whereas if, if you know you're getting like you're toward required, don't hide it. Yeah. You're toward the act, the end of Act Two. You've looked at the clock. Maybe you've got only twenty minutes left to play. There's still this one piece of important information. The players are nowhere near the herbalist or the guy who knows the correspondence. And instead, they're beating up some bum who tried to pickpocket them in an alley. But somebody, when hitting the bum, rolls a yes and, and I'm going to go okay. Mm. And at the moment you hit him, he blurts out this whole story about how the herbalist told him not to tell anyone that he was the one that delivered the moon wart to the cultists. Yeah. What yeah. did you yeah. do? Mm-hmm. Just and put I that information that, right there. Cause it's time. <laughs> and I've right. talked to John before. So I think we, we worked out, you know, some of the mechanics for Corthulhu. We threw some magic in, uh, there was magic in both of them. I think we did a bit more magic and stuff and the sanity stuff in the second one. So the next one I want to do, I want to try to focus more on the action. So it's not the investigative. So I have three kind of ideas about what I want to do. And they're also not in that stereotypical 1920s Cthulhu mm-hmm. setting. So I'm going to ask Kurt and Jesse and John. So one of them's in the late, it's like in the 1100s, one is the 1400s, and one is in 1960. And Whoa. I want to have it more where there's more action for that away from the investigative. So I want to see which of the three, which of the three, which of the three. I'll, I'll, I'm going to send everybody kind of what the, the high, the, uh, 
the major outline of what those three areas would be and see what they want, the most interested one they want to do. And that's the next one will be. And I'm going to try to put more action into I think we did do quite a bit of action. Oh, yeah. It was, yeah. you know, there was, you know, but I want to, I want to focus less on the look at the microfiche, talk to this person, get the clues, be more an action packed one. So that's mm. going to be the next one I'm going to write. So nice. Intriguing. But uh, so real, real uh, going back, John, you were talking about with, um, with Corthulhu and how like the trauma plays out kind of in a longer scenario, mm. like multi adventure type thing. And now if you want, theoretically, you could take core strip it. You could take Corthulhu, strip it down and turn it into like a monster horror type thing. And I think this is this is kind of the the great thing about core micro and what I'm assuming will will kind of transition into core complete is the um, the adjustability in the in the piecemeal way that you can set up games like if you want you could take baby (laughs) exactly yeah you could take you could take the 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 shock from Corthulhu. Right. And if you're trying to create more of an in the moment monster horror type thing, type type game, remove trauma and throw in something like like a freak out table that that happens. That probably do that happens like right there and then that's more of an extreme version of shock. (laughs) Woodland creatures who reveal their demonic inner selves. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the nice thing about core. In that, yeah, all like Jesse's saying, all the pieces are modular. So, like, so uh, Kurt and I are working on a noir setting right now, and you know, I said to Kurt, like, shit, we could probably take the the uh, the monster hunt rules for you know, uh, uh, you know, going on the hunt. So, like, you know, making the rolls to like find out bits of information and this and that. You could you could reskin that as a as an investigative almost like sub game to mm-hmm. use that to like okay well I'm beginning the investigation you know I'm trying to track down this guy and you know modify what's in Monster Hunt and stick it in the core noir and it works right yeah. it's all the same scale it's all the same it's all the same um, you know dice mechanics everything is the same so hence the Megamon where we've uh, you know, took day was, trippers yeah. and Monster Hunt and you know WWA and mashed them all together. It's so easy to do within core to just pull the elements that you're interested in. When yep. it comes to, I'm going to get a little. I, I agree with all that, and exactly that's why it's the creative options role playing engine. All these little parts are are modular, like the gears on the cover of the book. Um, but I wanted to touch on the thing that you were just saying. Damn it! And I remember what it was because it was a really good point. It's that this thing, Kevin brought this up in one of the post shows, uh, I don't remember which one, that it's not just that they're modular. It's also that it's this kind of fractal. You can scale it any way you want. So Kevin was talking about you can make each a role for each individual piece of information. You have to go to the right bookshelf, find the right book, flip to the right page. You could make all of that, an indi- each one of those steps an individual role. Crank it, stretch it out. Or you make one big roll to see like how well you did in searching this room. Or you could even make one big roll for the whole day to see what all of us found searching this whole house. Mm-hmm. Right? You could scale it to whatever level you need to scale it at. And I think when it comes to the investigative games, that that might be a useful tool to think about. 
Like instead of making you, you know, tell me every bookshelf that you look at or everything like that, you just sort of like it's like a step into downtime for a little bit. Well, and I think if oh, we lost Kurt. Okay, uh, okay, we lost Kurt. Um, like you were talking talking earlier about we've lost Kurt. Um, yeah, you know, finding clue like don't hide the clue, and you know if you. You know, if you're in the room, like in the in the play test that we're doing for the scenario that I'm creating, you know, they go to the house and they, you know, they search the study. I don't care which shelf. I I look in the room. What do I find? If you roll a yes or a yes and you found it, I don't care if you were looking under the desk or in the couch. It's it's irrelevant. The clue is in the room. The specifics right. are, are not. Right. You know, but if you tell want me what to, you're doing, fiction wise, like, what do you, you do? Know, if you're that kind of if you're that kind of GM, because there are, you know, and there's a style of play where even, it's even appreciated that okay, no, if it was in the third book from the left on the top shelf on the bookshelf, and I know exactly where that is, and you never said you went near the bookshelf, then mm-hmm. my lips are sealed. Yep. Roll me a that's search a, check for that wall. Roll me a search check for yeah, that see, wall. Dumb. Roll me a search yeah. check. Or for say that the wall. word or say the word bookshelf. You never said you checked. Right. The book, right. Yeah. I'm just waiting to hear the word bookshelf. That's a style of play. It's not my style. But if you want to play at that level, you can you can use core for it. You can roll every goddamn little thing. <laughs> You're gonna be making up a lot of yes ands. Oh, here's the second thing: right. graduated the the graduated scale. Okay, graduated scale. So you don't have to make up a yes and or no but for every single thing. You can just have the players make one big roll, and then you look at the chart and you see what they beat. Right. So how well did you search the room for an hour or whatever, and you come up with an eight. You know, and I look and I was, oh, uh, it was, you beat very hard. So I sort of decided in my head what information is very hard and what's harder than that. And I tell you everything lower. Okay, you just found all these, lift them off. Everything lower than that difficulty on my little list in my head. Right, right. And it allows you to do that without doing like a a system that has a point spend, right? Where to to get that information, you got to spend this point or that point. Oh, yeah, no. Just doing it, yeah. No, because so it's because not... the role is like it, just the same as in action frames. Maybe maybe this will maybe this will help you um, think about combat when you're rolling. You, you're used to thinking, did I hit him? And you roll to see yes or no. Did I hit him? Okay. Not what's going on in core. In core, everybody rolls at once, and although they're using different mods, different skills, and different stats, everybody's asking the same question. The question is, how well do I do my thing? Yeah this frame that's what everybody's asking the role is how well you do you whatever the hell so the graduated difficulty is the same thing right you search the room for an hour how well did you do roll your dice tell me the highest one add any bonus i give you okay hey so you found everything seven or below and i'm just i don't it's not like i have a list i could i could have a list but really it's most of the time i just kind of like imagine in my head well off the list of information I do have, that one's definitely above a seven. But these three are below for sure. And Sam, yep, I dig it. And then you don't even have to pick a DL. You're just you're just going against. You don't the, even have to pick a DL. Chart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just answering the same question you ask every frame in contact in combat, which is how well did you do? Right, right. I like that. I, that uh, that hadn't I hadn't thought about that, but that that's an interesting and simple, easy way to go about it. <laughs> yeah. Everybody declares what they're trying to do, and then their role is how well did you do it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the dice are just a narrative prompt. I mean, they're they're re-engaging you with the fiction. 
Exactly. You're a writer. Remember, you're you're in the writer's room. My players are creative geniuses. My job is not to limit their creative potential. Even if their character is failing at this moment, I want to give them more creative potential. Because it's interesting when characters fail. Let's see where this goes. Well, and that's the other thing I like about the dice, because failing in and of itself is uninteresting. But yes and no but, you know, it, it gives you a range of possibilities that can happen. You know, succeed exactly. with a failure or fail with you know, kind of a partial success. It leads to more interesting stories. Failure can be interesting, right? Like, you know, I charge the guy and, you know, trip and fall down and, you know, you get stabbed or whatever the fuck. Like, maybe that's interesting. You know, it leads to an interesting part of the story. But, like, in and of itself, you know. Well, you actually just added an and onto it. Well, that's, yeah. Right. right. <laughs> you know, did and I you find know, the thing? Yeah. No. Well, okay. Yeah. Well, now what? You know. Right. So now you have to you know, keep rolling the same thing over and over again, which is stupid. Or you have to find some other skill, which in many games, what other skill? I've only got four skills. <laughs> right. Right, right. yeah i mean that's one of the, that's one of the big things and you know kind of brings me back to you know core's just good gm advice but on paper of you know you one of the big questions that's always asked with traditional games is you know what do i do if my players just want to keep rolling the same thing or what do i do if they fail and like uh you know and uh, the advice that's usually given is the the fail forwards like all right well they fail but something else happens right or you know if they fail hard enough well then make something happen that makes them go somewhere else right and that is that's core that's that's no and and no but well, right yeah, there. it's like story it's like, happens. okay you yeah you've no you've matter failed. what happens you're gonna get story out of it i want to try to exactly creating stories so i mean yeah. in a way as you watch any tv show the hero's gonna get in trouble the hero's gonna fuck up the hero's gonna be in the totally wrong place when the victim is like almost gonna be raped and oh my god will he make it in time right mm -hmm. the, that's actually good drama drama we want that shit you're in the yep. wrong place at the wrong time. You just made it worse for yourself. We're only in Act 2. You need to make it worse for yourself. That's what's going to make it feel so good when we yep. get to the end of Act 3, right? You want that stuff. So yep. so it's not about, like, did you fail or did you succeed? It's about, about what kind of spin is it going to Is it spinning up right now? Is it spinning down? Because right. that's, right, the tension. Yeah. Is it spinning up or is it spinning down? That's That's where the feelings are coming from. Mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's a fast pace or exciting, exciting or is it is it slowing down and you can feel that and the gm if he's looking at a, at a circle or a timer especially can feel when it's time to ramp that up again the players respond mm -hmm. to it it's, it's it's i can come up with you know terms and mechanics and everything but ultimately this comes down to feeling it and core is yeah. trying to stay out of your way so you can feel like if you if you're going with beats, go with beats. If you're going with mood, go with mood. If you're the kind of GM who wants to make sure that this clue is planted before that clue, I would say keep them mobile. That way you can sort of approach them in a core way, but let the players' feelings guide this. That's mm -hmm. nobody ever remembers mechanics like years down the road. Nobody remembers it. it was oh, it was brilliant that you created a system in which the dice mods were on the same scale as the dice mods. Nobody remembers that shit. They remember the way they felt when that thing in the story happened, mm. and they looked so fucking badass, and they saved everybody. Right. That's what they remember.
So I'm trying to create those dramatic moments. The numbers like almost don't matter. They're just there so that the moments will be even more dramatic. But they're just yep. there to like tell you a prompt to get the fuck out of your way. Yep. What's this guy do next? Oh my god! Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like the you know the in the day trippers game, the firefight that that uh, that Trey and Reggie were in, right? I can tell you what ha- I can tell you the story of what happened. <laughs> I can't tell you the roles we made. Now, yeah, all right, I can, but that's the th- that's kind of the part of core, right? Is that I can I could probably in telling you the story retro engineer it and A say few. okay yeah, these yeah, are okay, probably that, was, the that roles. had to be yes and exactly yeah. yeah yeah but I don't remember the role like when, specific when Nash that we came made. rolling in in his car at just the exact right moment and shot the guy yeah, right. in the open door of the van. Yep. <laughs> yeah but it's like i don't remember the roles that we make i don't even remember when we roll necessarily but i can tell you exactly. the story and that's exactly. what counts. And that's, what you remember yeah. is that what your what your mind is doing is like remembering the way that felt and so mm-hmm. the, the more the more strongly i can make you feel something the deeper it's going to go the easier it's going to be yep. for you to remember and then by by telling the story over and over again you just you re-stimulate that just like a real memory, your brain, yep. <laughs> this is kind of scary thing about the human brain, right? Your, your reactive mind doesn't know whether it's responding mm-hmm. to something fictional or something real. Yep. If it has an emotional effect, it has an emotional effect. That's why fiction works. That's why we spend so much money going to movies and shit. <laughs> right? Yeah. Your mind, that's doesn't, thing, yeah. your mind doesn't know that that's not real. I mean, he'd left her and now he's going to Spain and I'm crying. <laughs> these aren't even real people i'm fucking crying <laughs> yeah and i mean that's a, that's ultimately the thing with core that i love is that for me rolling you know rolling dice and everything like that breaks telling the story in the moment you know it's a pause in the narrative and it's a pause in 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 the collective storytelling and so the less rolling that you can do to get the most effect right is what happens if I if I can roll once to explain an hour's worth the events, that's fine by me. And that's why the bipartite answer. I mean, yeah, binaries are boring, but this is also just a matter of oomph, okay? Because I know mm-hmm. every time you roll the dice, I've lost one point of immersion. Mm-hmm. So I want to be sure that rolling the dice gives me back at least two points, right, of immersion. Yeah. And that's why I really like too about what you've done with the frames is that in pretty much every other system that you play with, you know, when it talks about uh, turns or anything like that or rounds, it's a specific point of time, right? You're dealing with five seconds or six seconds or 10 seconds or three seconds, right? Frames are modular, right? It could, it all depends on what you're dealing with at that moment in time. A frame could be an hour, a frame could be a day, a frame could be two seconds. Yeah, and again, cinematic what? cinematic logic, right? Exactly. Because we don't really. I mean, we know we know it's unrealistic, but we still let it go. When mm-hmm. you're watching a thing on TV and there's, there's this firefight and they're shooting each other back and forth, and the heroes are running behind. Did you get? Here's a gun, and he tosses her the gun, and she's running over there, and and like there's this emotional exchange where he goes, "I've always known you love me, baby." And for that moment, like it took him five seconds to say that and for her to get watery eyed and say, I know, and pat him on the cheek. Like 
no one was shooting at him for five seconds while we had this little emotional <laughs> <Right>. exchange. <laughs> and we let it happen. We let it go. Because that's narrative logic right there. That's what they did this scene. <laughs> yeah, everything drills down on that one moment and everything else. Yeah, so like, it's, so like really this that conversation was actually in between shots. Like the enemy were busy reloading, I guess. I don't know. We just let it go. <laughs> right. Because it doesn't matter. Was it, well, wait a minute. But it, he was shooting like once every half. Doesn't matter. <laughs> doesn't matter because this is what the hero wanted to do right now. This is this is what the scene is. It's five seconds of looking into her eyes. That's what the scene is. <laughs> yep. All right. Do we want to? Do you have anything you want to like throw out to like wrap us up in a neat bow? Because we could. I mean, we could do this for another three hours. Probably, we could do this for. Should... Well, listen. Here's the thing, man. I I just I just wanted to tell uh, or to rather you know let stories emerge in as flexible and creative a way as possible. And I've stripped everything down to this system I call core micro for me. Uh, I mean, it's free or it's pay what you want, but for me, the, the, the big jolly, the big thrill, I mean, I'm not planning on getting rich off a of core, but it's kind of like, kind of like some, I, some writers enjoy seeing fan art. Like I'm, I'm one of those. Right, I'm going to be really, really happy the first time I go to drive through and I see a core product that someone wrote who I had I've never heard of, or if I go to Reddit and someone's talking about their their core world and I have no idea who this person is. So for me, that's the next step. I think that with you guys and the play tests that you've done and the if we counted up, think of how the hundreds of hours, John and John and Jesse, but especially John because he does the editing and the setup and everything have spent basically making sure that day trippers and then core is as nice and tight and flexible as it could possibly be and helping it get out there and then creating worlds for it. I think we've taken it like up like a whole level, right? We leveled up. And now the next level is you people out there building worlds that we here have nothing to do with. That's what I want to see Absolutely. Make more Love games that. so that I have more mechanics to put into Megamon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, like I said, we're working on a on a core noir game, which we'll see whether or not that works as a as a whole setting. I, you know, it, it's a. I mean, we could run. We are gonna run it with core micro. I mean, that's how we're gonna start this at. We're starting next week. It'll, I don't know when it's going to release on MFGCast, but we're recording our first session next week. Um, and, and you can run it with that. But what we want to try to do is make mechanics that fit in a noir setting and then see whether or not that stuff all shakes out. Now, maybe somebody beats us to it. Open challenge to somebody who wants to create a core noir world before we can <laughs> lock it all down. But, but you know, in a, in a, in a very real way, it's like, Core is similar to Savage Worlds or Cipher System in that you can run anything. You may need to pull in specific things or create specific mechanics, like for Corthulhu, it was the shock, it was the trauma. Um, and you could, you know, we probably could have just, you know, fudged it with psyche rolls, right? I mean, we didn't have to have a whole other mechanic for it, but I think it right. makes it better, right? It makes it tighter, it makes it mm -hmm. more um, germane, it makes, it makes the world a little bit you know, larger and, you know, 
more fulfilling, I guess. So we want to try to do that with noir. And of course I'm working on the wushu thing too, on the side. Um, God, I mean, uh, this group may put out another four settings, <laughs> right? I just got, I just got two, I got, got two more stupid ideas while we were having, where we were just talking for the next last three hours. So, yeah, but, but hopefully we've got a Discord, which I don't know that I put the link in the show notes. I'll have to go back and do that. But we have a Discord. Oh, we've got a subreddit. Remember. There's a Facebook page. There's Twitter. You could follow all of us. We, we're always talking about core. We've got a four-year campaign of Day Trippers, which is all core run by the master himself. Mm-hmm. So if you want to see how core is meant to be run – it. It is literally, I've said it before, it is the best game I have ever played in, like ever. Like, it's phenomenal. And and a good portion of that is because I've got you fully immersed in a psychic bond. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, and and playing with good players, Jesse and John. I I mean, it's just, it's phenomenal. If you never listen to anything we ever put out, God, listen to the Day Trippers game. It's, it's it's the best. It's literally the best. It's a great story. You know what's really great about the Day Trippers? I mean, it's so long, and like you want to tell people like what's a good episode to wade in, and it's like, oh, man, it's so hard. There's so many, and there's complicated. There's story, care, plot, develop, all of this relationships going on. But really, just listen to the first episode. Hmm. because and, But you listen to it all the way through, please. Because when it starts out, you're going to think you know what this is. And by the time it's done, you're either a Day Trippers fan or you're not. You will know. Because it's not what you think it is when, when it starts. You know, what's funny, too, is I actually, a few months ago, went back and re-listened to the first episode. And that exact thing. Like, I've, I've, I've listened to the whole thing. I've experienced it from beginning to end or beginning to current and all that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, like my concept of what the first few episodes were was completely different when I actually went back and re-listened to it. And I was like, oh, yeah, this got way heavier way earlier than I thought. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It you starts know, off here, you're like, I've seen this movie a hundred times before, you yeah. know, and by like an hour in, you're like, wait a minute, what? What? Yep. <laughs> For a four-year campaign... There are so many elements in the first episode. Oh, absolutely. That have bore fruit through four fucking seasons. Yeah. Sure, man. I reuse everything. Like, I am oh, frugal, if nothing else. Yeah. I reuse Reducer, everything. Reduce, recycle. That's me, man. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, I can suck gonna... meaning out of a bone everyone else has forgotten about for two <laughs> years. You're the hyena of DM of GM. That <laughs> <laughs> may be true. All right. Well, we're we're gonna wrap this up. We're gonna thank everybody for checking it out. If you have any post-show core questions, you can hit us up. Uh, any of us on Twitter or you know, Legends of Tabletop at gmail.com or you know, reach out, whatever, the Facebook page. Um, thank you for checking it out. We have coffee for sale. As always, uh, if you use code LEGENDS10, you're going to get 10% off your order. Shipping is always free. You order that sweet, legendary brew. It's a nice, easy-drinking medium roast. A little bit of the money comes back to the show. Helps pay for the SoundCloud and all that sort of stuff. It's good coffee. I just put in an order in, in real time. Anybody that's listening to this. Um, 
like it, it's hopefully on its way. I don't know. So I don't have to buy backup coffee because it's literally the only thing I drink these days. Um, it's fantastic. Roasted by GM Neil. Uh, I think everybody here has probably had it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, the other brews are also fantastic as well. You don't get any money from that, but you still get the discount. Discount. You still get the free shipping. If you want to try some of the other brews, I suggest that as well. They're all fantastic. Uh, ratings, reviews on iTunes or whatever your podcatcher of choices. Super helpful. There's a link in the show notes for all the hottest core things. Please go and check that out as well. If you're going to buy any of the core products, buy Core Micro. It's kind of the reason why we're all sort of doing this. So, like, you know, put your money over there. We're just fucking around. This is, you know, Todd's gig. So spend money over there. Uh, the Patreons, if you're inclined to throw some cash at us, again, throw cash at Todd. We have a Patreon. It doesn't matter. We're going to just record because it's whatever. So, yay. We're support. spiteful. Cool. <laughs> spiteful. Peace out. <laughs> Peace. Thank you all. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop Broadcast Network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.